Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Johnny Griffiths, and it is one of my all-time favourite conversations. But before we dive into that, a quick word from our brand new sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is kindly sponsored by The Open University. Now, I have a confession to make that may not go down well with many of my listeners. I don't actually have a maths degree. Yep, I'm a closet economist. I know, I know. Anyway, on my bucket list for a long time has been to do a maths degree. And given that moving into halls of residence for three years and partying like it's the year 2000 probably wouldn't go down a storm with my wife and newborn son, the Open University has always appealed to me. The Open University actually celebrates its 50th birthday in 2019. Conceived as a university of the air, I love that phrase, and made famous by its iconic television programs of the 1970s, the university has always embraced each technological innovation, from VHS to DVD to the internet and now smartphones, to bring high-quality distance learning to students throughout the UK, Europe and the world. With over 150,000 students, mostly studying part-time, often while they work, the university supports students through its open learning methodology, which combines excellent teaching materials, support from a dedicated tutor, online teaching and interaction with fellow students. Since its foundation, mathematics has been a central part of the university's provision, and the Open University Master of Science degree in mathematics was one of the earliest named degrees offered by the university. Now, this is my favourite bit. Students study at their own pace. Some take just over two years, others take six or more, and on average, students take around three to four years. And it's also possible to have breaks between modules. The Open University actually has many students who are maths teachers, as well as financial service professionals, scientists, engineers and computer scientists. It's kind of like my ideal dinner party. Students on the Master of Science programme benefit from a wonderful community of fellow students and tutors. They also have two tutors who facilitate online support via the student forums. The modules on offer cover topics such as, are you ready for this? The Calculus of Variations and Advanced Calculus, number theory, non-linear differential equations, error-correcting codes, and the geometry of fractals. Wow. The Master of Science programme in mathematics is in many ways the jewel in the crown of the Open University mathematics offering. You can email maths-msc at open.ac.uk for further information, or just type in F04 Open University into your favourite search engine. That's F04 Open University. And who knows, maybe we'll be doing a lovely bit of maths together at the Open University one day. (laughs) 
the Open University, you are interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of the very best podcast listeners in the whole wide world, then just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out more about the sponsor packages available. Anyway, back to today's episode with Johnny Griffiths. I think it's fair to say that Johnny is an absolute legend of the maths teaching world. I first became aware of his work in my NQT year when I came across his RISPs activities. And for those who don't know, they stand for Rich Starting Points for A-Level Maths. And we're going to dig deep about those later in the conversation. I then had the pleasure of hearing Johnny speak at an early TSM conference in Aundel, which was hosted by Douglas Butler, and I have been a massive fan of Johnny's work ever since. And then I was lucky enough to share a drink with Johnny at the 2019 Joint ATM MA conference, where I quickly realised two things. Firstly, RISPs is only scratching the surface of Johnny's mathematical story. And secondly, I just had to get him on the podcast. So, in a wide-ranging, challenging, fascinating, and I reckon pretty important conversation, Johnny and I discussed the following things, and plenty more besides. First off, Johnny's life as a rock star, and how that type of performance is actually very different to what a teacher needs to do. Then we talk about an old podcast favourite, the Smile Resources, and Johnny's experience with them. I asked Johnny about some of the challenges of teaching in a sixth form college compared to teaching in an 11 to 16 or 11 to 18 school. Then we go deep into task design, as I asked Johnny to choose three tasks, all of which are available in the show notes, and describe why he likes them and how he would use them. And believe me, there are some absolute crackers. We then venture into uncharted territory for this podcast when we discuss textbook design and what makes a good exercise before Johnny wraps everything up with some excellent reflections and a wonderful big three. Now, amidst all the incredible insights about task design and pedagogy in general, I think the thing that struck me most about this conversation was when Johnny describes, with incredible honesty and clarity, his early struggles as a teacher and the importance of our state of mind and mental health. On a selfish level, I found this part of the conversation incredibly useful to help me think about some of my own struggles, and I'm sure other listeners will do the same too. I honestly think this is one of the most important conversations I've ever had on this podcast. Now, just before we crack on, the usual plugs. My book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, is still available from all good and all evil bookshops. If you want to sponsor the podcast, drop me an email. And you can also support the podcast via Patreon and sign up to buy me a Mellow Birds coffee a month. Details are in the show notes or via patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths. And finally, as you may well know, I've hosted a brand new series of podcasts. There's eight episodes and the series is called Inside exams where I go behind the scenes of an awarding body to hopefully ask the questions you want answering. We tackle everything, grade boundaries, mark schemes, language, multiple choice questions. I'm dead, dead proud of it. That's Inside Exams. Search for it wherever you get your podcast from or there's a link in the show notes. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce you to the wonderful Johnny Griffiths. He is such a great storyteller. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to him. I really hope you enjoy this one. I have no doubt whatsoever that you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. 
Okay, Johnny. So we start the podcast as we always do with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Okay, well, uh, my favourite number is actually 13, uh, in fact. Um, I suppose I feel a bit sorry for the number 13. It seems to me it gets a sort of bad press around the place. Um, my wife and I live at number 11 on our street, and next door to us is number 15. You oh, know. wow. So, you know, what is all that about? That's discrimination of the worst possible kind. So um, it's also the number 13 is the only number I know that has the fear of that number has a name, uh, which is triskaidophobia, which is fear of the number 13. Um, so that's that's pretty that's a there's a bit of a downer on the number 13 again. And um, I suppose mathematical reasons I like 13. Um, I like um regular tessellations i like semi-regular tessellations i like the platonic solids and i like the archimedean solids which are those you can build out of regular polygons as long as the, the combination around any vertex is the same and there are 13 of those so that's nice um 13 is a it's a fibonacci prime and um you know nobody knows how many of those there are uh we, we know about 34 of them and then uh, if you look on Wikipedia, it'll, it'll say that there are another 17 that are probable primes. Now, that, that's a kind of that's a nice idea, isn't it? You know, to tell our kids that there are some numbers that are regarded as being primes, probably. Well, what, you, uh, what, what does that mean, Charlie? Sorry for my, my ignorance here. How, well, how, how can uh, a number be probably a prime? Well, I, the problem is it's so big that it's very, very hard to check. Right. But but you can you can um, presumably you can carry out certain tests on it as to whether it's likely to factorise or not. I mean, you know, this is beyond what I know. Um, but that would throw a lot of kids, I think, to say, well, this is probably prime. Um, uh, and then I think also apparently what has been proved about Fibonacci primes is that there are only three that are members of a twin pair, prime twin pair. That's that's two primes that are just two apart. Um, so three and five, obviously they're both Fibonacci numbers and they're two apart. The only other number that is in a prime and is also Fibonacci is the number 13. So that's another reason to love 13, I think. Jeez, Jack. Well, what I try and do on this podcast is be inclusive with all my guests, and you're you're being inclusive with all the numbers, Johnny. So I love this. You're bringing thirteen back into into the fold. <laughs> yeah, I like, that's absolutely brilliant, Anthony. Super. Um, maths speed dating question number two, then, Johnny. Well, what was your favourite topic in maths when you were a student? Well, I, I, I do have two memories that I'm really fond of from school. Um, one is when I was about fourteen. Um, our teacher, who was a very brilliant man called Steve Russ, wonderful teacher, and he um, he walked in and suddenly he started asking us a really strange question about sort of look points and how many how many points, how many lines, how many regions, and I was it was basically it was the first time I'd ever met what what we might call an investigation, and I was absolutely transfixed by it, and I thought you know you know so this is what maths is. And, you know, why haven't you told us this before? You know, this is this is just great. And um, that had a, that had a big effect on me, I think, really. And then secondly, it was also Steve also who introduced me to uh, what are called uh, periodic recurrence relations. Now, without getting too fancy about it, um, for example, if, example, if you take uh, the number X 
and then you say the next term is going to be 1 over x, um, then in a sense you're establishing a rule for generating a sequence of numbers. You're saying to get the next, next number, you do 1 over the number before. So 1 over 1 over x would be x. So that sequence just goes x, 1 over x, x, 1 over x. And it's that is an example of a periodic recurrence relation. Now what Steve did one day was walk in and put on the board x and y, and then he said the next term is going to be y plus 1 over x. Now, so in other words, to get the next term, you take the previous term, you add 1, and then divide by the term before that. Have you, have, Craig, have you met this before? No, I haven't, but I'll tell you what, I've, I've got a pen and paper in my hand here. You've, you've hooked me straight in here, Johnny. Keep, keep telling me about this one. Well, this, this basically, what I, I really, really hate to do this, but unfortunately, I have to sort of, sort of tell you the answer before you ever get a chance. <laughs> basically, you can do, you, people can try this themselves. The al algebra is really lovely. As a test of algebra for your students, this is brilliant. What happens is this turns out to be also periodic. In other words, you get back to X and then Y, and the period is actually five. Wow. Um, and, you know, it's very hard to believe because as you do the first couple of terms, it gets more and more complicated. And then suddenly you get this factorization and that you can cancel a factor, which makes it much simpler. And then the same thing happens again and again. So, I mean, if you're into cancelling, which which I am, <laughs> I, I, uh, I think I, I probably love cancelling more than anything, really. I mean, you, you know. If you give me a, a fact of the night council, I'm happy for the rest of the day. Um, but this is this is the ultimate example of that. It's That's really fantastic. Good. And just for the benefit, listen, Johnny, will you give us the start of that sequence one more time so people can, yeah, can sure. jot this down? So effectively, you go, you, you go. First, first term is x, second term is y, and then the third term is y plus one over x. Fantastic. All right. So, so the rule is to get the next term, you add one to the previous term and then divide by the term before that. And this is this is not a negligible thing. This is not this is not some sort of uh, little triviality that is if you people have written. This is actually at the heart of um, a lot of I mean, I, I've heard Don Zagier, the the uh, amazing mathematician, talk about this and this this result in kind of hallowed tones. It really does go quite deeply to certain areas of mathematics, this result. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Flipping heck, and that's something for listeners to play along with. This is this is brilliant, Johnny. I'm hoping we haven't peaked too soon on this interview, because that's two, <laughs> two cracking answers so far. Yeah, well, I am feeling a bit exhausted. So <laughs> if, we could, if we could have a little break, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, well, question number three, then. What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in maths education? Yes. Um, well, I, I find this a really tricky one. Um because of course, if I had, I, basically, I'm not, I'm not a big one for regrets. I, I don't sort of tr cry over spilt milk very much. Uh, but um, I, I actually, I would choose teaching all over again in, in a shot, you know. Um, and also, you're sort of asking me if I, if I hadn't chosen teaching, then I would be really a completely different person. Mm. So, so therefore, it's very difficult to say. I suppose, I think what you can say is that I. I like the nine to five. I, I don't like jobs that require traveling all around. At one stage, I was in a band, and I have to say that's what killed me was the traveling. You know, getting on a motorway for five hours. 
and then performing somewhere and then driving another five hours to somewhere else. Um, that, that's not me. Um, I suppose I would like to do something involved with maths. Um, I wonder maybe being an actuary would be a very interesting job. Um, but I think you're asking, it's, it's rather a profound question, I think, because, um, <clears throat> I suppose I may have, I'm in danger of getting slightly religious on you here. (laughs) Go for it. Uh, I mean, you know, we're talking about vacation here, aren't we? We're talking about calling. And uh, so, yeah, I I suppose I did, I I always felt that sense of vacation towards mathematics. Even when my teaching wasn't going very well, I always had this sense that I was doing something stupendously worthwhile. And, you know, that was very important to me, really, that, that worthwhileness. Well, fantastic. See so, again, superb answer, that, Johnny. Well, um, you've kind of hinted at it there. I think of all my guests, you've had. I don't know. It's, it's fascinating listening to people's stories. How they how they get into teaching. Some have always wanted to do it. Some fall into it. Some come to it by kind of weird and wonderful ways. But but you've got a, a particularly interesting um, journey into education, and I'm I'm fascinated into into digging deeper in. So I wonder, Johnny, can you just take us through um, the steps in your career, well, where it started for you, and, and how you became the, the the man you are today? Let's keep this um, profoundness going. Go for it. Okay. Well. Um... I suppose I was I was fortunate enough to go to Dulwich College as a school. Um, this is so Dulwich. It's a very venerable public school on the on the edge of London, and it's um, it's very old. It's, it's in fact it's, it was founded in 1619, which is exactly 400 years ago. And um, I loved it there. Um, I, I was sent as part of the direct grant experience, which meant that the local authority paid for me to go there. My parents didn't pay. Um, there were a lot of us there. I think I think a lot of direct grant kids at Dutch at that time. And, you know, um, especially at A level, I just loved it to bits. I had fantastic teachers. Um, I, was, I was I was of course dimly aware of the kind of privilege that was involved. Um, but you meet some people who really hated their time at public school. That was not me. I, I loved it. And I suppose I, I kind of, that's, I always aspired to offer my students in, in whatever setting that kind of same feeling of being totally at home in a maths classroom. That's, that's really, I had that experience for myself very young. Um, and, you know, my school career was kind of glittering, I have to say. I, I just turned <laughs> up, every, I turned up every day. I, I, I feasted on music and sport and, and maths. I came out of it with three A's at all, like every single person in my class, we all got three A's. And, um, and then I got a scholarship to Cambridge and I, it, look, it all looked plain sailing from there. Um, you know, I was, I was going to go on to do research. I was going to be a Don, et cetera, et cetera. It was only later that things started to go, go wrong with that idea. Or maybe they weren't right. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, I suppose, um, yeah, I mean, what the thing I wasn't terribly good at at Dulwich was the Olympiad maths. I never, I never got to be in the, you know, I never got very far with that um, that end of doing things for the problem, Olympiad problem solving. Um, okay, so I spent my year off, left Dulwich, spent my year off teaching at Great Wolstead in Sussex, and that was a real. It was a wonderful prep school. I loved Great Wolstead, but it was, uh, I, I was not a natural in the class. I didn't I didn't kind of some people just walk in and away they go that wasn't me at all I found it very difficult and I suppose um, that lodged in the back of my mind as a 
as something I would want to revisit later. You know, can, I, can I just ask, Johnny, what well, which bits of it did you you find you find you weren't natural at? Was it the behaviour? Was it explaining concepts to students? Because I, I imagine plenty of listeners listening to this will find reassurance in this because I, I know I certainly found teaching incredibly hard at the start. So which which bits in particular did you did you find difficult? Well, yes, I, I, I suppose behaviour was an issue. I mean, um, but it was just the whole business of, of, of forming relationships with students. I mean, maybe I wasn't there long enough. I was only there for two terms. But mm. um, the more I've gone on with teaching, it seemed to me the more the heart of it is about forming relationships with students that are built on trust, yes. that, are, that are built on mutual respect. They know they know that they will that you're both operating within a, a framework that you have established in your classroom that is democratic in the sense that you will listen to people who have problems with the framework you know and all of that stuff about really um you know gently building relationships with students i, I just wasn't very good at it to start with i mean it sounds like uh, maybe i was slightly sort of lofty perhaps my kind of um uh, experience of public school had not really educated me in what it means to get on with with people by and large you know i'll say it again um you know in, in terms of i i think that's probably true that in terms of getting on with the vast majority of the country going to dulwich college was a disaster um so <laughs> there i've said it <laughs> no it's fair again I mean, it's, it's it's fascinating john this will resonate with a lot of people it's it, it, yeah the, the, this honesty that that not everybody again you, you, you have all these grand views of what teaching is going to be like and you see all these days you see all the adverts on telly and stuff and you think this is the dream job i've always wanted to do this and it's yeah very often the reality is isn't quite like that for, for many reasons so this is this is fascinating mm, mm. Okay, so I finished my year out and I went off to Cambridge and this is where I had a massive shock to the system because um, basically I discovered that it, it, by the standards of Cambridge University Mathematics, I, I wasn't that good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wasn't I wasn't a disaster. I was kind of middle of the seconds every year, but that's that's kind of where I was. And but but more than that, uh, suddenly maths started to become a bit scary for me. I, mean, I, I think you would have struggled to find anybody at that, uh, when I arrived at Cambridge who loved maths more than I did. I mean, I had gone down to the library, I cleared the maths shelves of everything and, and read it all, and I just couldn't get enough of it. But then I arrived at Cambridge and gradually um, the air was sort of sucked out and I just was living on very, very meagre rations. And it's it's I think it's kind of a miracle that that I, I stay that you know I, I came through it really and I, I this is true for lots of people it's not just true for me I was speaking with Lynn McClure the other day uh, and she's the rather wonderful manager of Cambridge Assessment mm. etc and she said where did you do your maths and I said Cambridge and she said did you enjoy it and I said not really. <laughs> And then I said, but on the other hand, you know, that was a long time ago and I'm sure things are better now. And she just looked at me and said, no, they're not. Um, so, you know, the, there were there were brilliant lecturers. Don't get me wrong. There were brilliant lecturers there. Uh, Tom Kerner was just fantastic. John Conway was amazing. Mm. But um, by and large, the lecturers 
didn't really seem to be in love with the idea of lecturing. They, the teaching seemed a bit of an annoyance. Right. They they were clearly they wanted to get back to their research by and large. But again, I didn't help the situation. It's, this is partly my fault because I didn't seek out the sort of personal contact with people that, that I've had at Dulwich, you know. Um, there was no one to nourish me. I had to go and get, I should have gone out and get someone to nourish me. That, you know, I spoke to Vicky Neal fairly recently. Now, and I also spoke to some of her students. She was a director of studies for maths at a Cambridge college. Now, it was very obvious that Vicky took her job as director of studies incredibly seriously. And all of those students, I, all of her students I talked to, they felt cared for and kind of, you know, nourished and affirmed. Mm. And, you know, if, if I'd been lucky enough to have someone like Vicky, I think my experience would have been very different. Yes. Um, so, you know, take care. If you're applying to Cambridge, make sure you go to a college where the director of studies, you know, looks out for you. That's what I would say. Um, but yeah, I've, I've met so many people who've been scarred by Cambridge mathematics. You know, I've, I've often thought of forming a support group. <laughs> um, do you do you hear the which, same thing about Oxford, Johnny, or is it is it something? Because obviously it'd be a similar system in terms of the supervisions and, and director of studies and so on. Or, or is it something? Is it something unique to Cambridge? Do you think? Well, I suppose to, to be fair, I, I I I don't really I don't really know about Oxford to be honest. Um, I should tell you this other thing, which was that both my mother and my father went to Cambridge, and they all, in fact, they met at Cambridge, so obviously got married. So, um, in a sense, my choice of going to Cambridge was psychologically a little bit complicated, mm. you know? and I think I think really I would have been just much better off going to somewhere that my parents had nothing to do with. Yes. Um, uh, so that's another factor to factor in. Um, so yeah, I mean, what what does what to say about it really? I suppose in in one one sense, I feel grateful for the experience in the sense that I can totally empathise with my students who are fearful of mathematics. Yes, you know, because I've been there myself. Um, so that I suppose I, I got fed up with 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 uh, that experience. So I basically said, well, you know, forget this for game soldiers. <laughs> I'm, I'm going, I, I completed my part one in maths, which was two years, and then I switched to do education part two, which included half a part two in maths. But um, I decided by then I wanted to be a teacher and uh, at secondary level. And it seemed like a good thing. It was a good thing to do. It was great. I, I got a chance to think about education a lot. Uh, and, and I also got to write a lot of essays, which I rather enjoyed. And, and it, it was, it, so that was a really... Uh, it was a good move. So I emerged um, ready to teach maths, uh, <laughs> but then, um, but then of course somebody invited me to join a band rather, <laughs> rather, rather kind of inconveniently, and um, I must admit I was rather curious about that. So I, I said yes, and we were on the road for six years. Um, four of those we were full time. 
And, and uh, Johnny, what I find fascinating about this is you're a very modest man, but this is this is quite a significant band, right? Because we, we've had we've had guests on the show who've also um, been involved in music. So Dylan William, for example, was a, a bit of a, a bit of a, a rock star in his day. Tom Sherrington, he he was in a band, but none quite live up to the, the kind of status that, that your band got to. So do you want to just give us? I know this may be uncomfortable. But do you want to just give us a, a couple of highlights? What what were some of your your favourite accolades or some of the things you were most proud of from your band days? Okay, well, I mean, we, our name was Harvey and the Wallbangers, and we we did have a Harvey, Harvey Bruff, who was something of a golden boy at Cambridge. He ran choirs, he ran orchestras, he he he, he everything he touched turned to gold, basically. <laughs> and um, we uh, we got together to support another band, Cambridge band called um, Telephone Bill and the Smooth Operators, and we we went to Edinburgh Festival. Every, it went so well; it just it was just great. And then. In two years after that, we actually did our first full show at Edinburgh. We went full time. So I think the way I look back on the band, I would say um, the first two years were fantastic fun. The, sec- the, the second two years were extremely hard work, but very enjoyable. And then the last two years were just absolute unmitigated hell. Basically. <laughs> um, we, you know, I suppose you're talking about, well, why was it such hell? Basically, we, we sort of lost our way. We, we did a show that, that didn't really bring the punters in. We made a big loss. We suddenly looked at our tax bill and realized we hadn't been saving for our tax bill. <laughs> we, uh, our manager, Stephen, um, developed a brain tumor. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he, he basically, he died three days before our final concert. So Jeez. Um, so that was that was pretty horrible, and you know we we managed to do it. We clawed our way out. We got we paid off that tax bill, and we emerged not owing anybody anything, and that was great. But we had a narrow escape. You know, it was not mm. not not easy. And I, I was of course being the manager, I was in charge of the group accounts, of course, you know, of obviously. Course. And can I tell you, Craig? Basically running the accounts of a rock band can you just, just don't don't even think about it it's just terrible anyway. i'm guessing there aren't receipts for every, all purchases made and stuff like that it must be a bit of a nightmare <laughs> anyway so anyway we, you know the tr- and also the trouble with being in, I, I, i'd always all, all the way through the band really i wanted to be a maths teacher and so yeah i just in the end i just this was my chance the trouble is when you're in a band um you become very sort of unrealistic about life. Mm. You know, everybody, everybody's clapping you all the time, <laughs> and you know you, you sort of you sort of um, attain almost godlike status for some people, and that's not good for anyone. It really isn't good. Um, you know, fame is a very dangerous thing. Yes. And um, so you know, I, I, I was sort of telling myself as I left the band rather foolishly that look, I want to be a I want to be a really really great maths teacher <laughs> that that means i'm going to have to teach in a really really difficult school yes and and so i signed up for comprehensive st philip howard in tower hamlets and you know this this was in the days when i think tower hamlet schools were, were pretty hard work mm. and um well i'm sure they are still uh, but um you know london schools have had an amazing uh sort of turnaround you know in in many ways because of a lot of money and attention has been spent on them but th- this was in the days when Tower Hamlet schools were, were, were you know tricky 
And um, I turned up uh, thinking, oh, the kids will have heard of the band. My, you know, I'll be, it'll be easy. And of course, the kids hadn't heard of the band. They, they didn't care at all about the band. And they basically sort of ran rings around me, you know, which I suppose is what you, which I suppose is what you expect for a, a probationary year. So I got through the. There were six of us probationers at the school, and um, we all we all we all went through amazing ups and downs in year one, as you do. And um, I, I passed my probationary year, which is which is great. And everybody was telling me, you know, year two will be so much easier. You won't believe it. Um, the kids will know you. You'll be part of the furniture. Away you go. And I turned up for year two. And, you know, well, no one had given my kids that script, you know. <laughs> um, and basically, it got really, really bad. I mean, I, I became stupendously depressed. You know, I mean, unbelievable. But in, in year one, I had ups and downs. This was just down, down, down. Really? And, um, the worse I got, the worse the kids got. And um, basically, I, I don't I just kept on going in. I don't know why. I didn't go and see a doctor. I just became more and more monosyllabic. I avoided the classroom. Sorry, the staff room. <laughs> yes, I should have avoided it. <laughs> <the class. laughs> um, and, and eventually, you know, um, I started to see a counsellor. I did start to see a counsellor. That was the one sensible thing I did. And um, then I suppose my body just had enough. And it just, you know, the one... One day, I just it went into reverse. I became very manic. I didn't sleep. I didn't. Um, I didn't sleep at all for three days. Really. Wow. I went to visit. I went to visit some friends in Cheshire. Um, they went out for a walk, and I was left in the house. And I just started smashing windows. You know. Jeez. Um, and my friends got back, and they found me sort of naked, curled up in a ball, surrounded by broken glass. You know. And um, they just rang, they rang an ambulance and I was hospitalised. Flapping act, Johnny. Mm -hmm. Jeez. Mm. So, look, uh, the reason I'm telling you this, <laughs> the reason I'm telling you this is because, you know, um, there's a lot of focus on mental illness at the mm. moment. And, um, you know, there's a lot of teachers under fantastic stress psychiatrically. And I just want to say that, you know, you can recover. And if I can recover anyone can recover yes so i'm hope i'm hoping you know i think people do need good news stories about mental illness and i hope fingers crossed that i'm a good news story that's, um, that's incredible johnny well what what happened after that did you take a break for a while or well was, how did you get yourself back well it was it was it was terrible for my friends obviously and it was terrible for my family i i took a break for a month and then I went back to the Tower Hamlet School and I knew immediately, I walked through the door, I knew immediately that I would need to resign straight away and just, I paid out my notice and then left. Um, and then I, very fortunately, I got a job pretty much straight away at St. Dominic's Sixth Form College. I decided that, I decided that Sixth Form College was more likely to be the place for me. Mm. And um, I was right. I mean, I, I went to St. Dominic's, which is which I was so lucky because St. Dominic's, you know, regularly comes top of the sixth form uh, league tables and so on. I mean, it's a wonderful place. 
and um, <clears throat> after I suppose I did I did feel I still felt not very happy in my teacher's skin I suppose I did flirt with the idea of computing I did I signed up for a, a course at Imperial College to learn postgraduate computing but that didn't really work out because my health my health wouldn't allow that um, I should I should say that you know my, my illness was recurrent and I was hospitalized a total of eight times um, but the good news is I've not been hospitalized since the year 2000 so wow. I regard myself as pretty much back on the straight and narrow now Jeez, and and th this may be a, a, a stupid question, Johnny, but would you, now that you're in a place where you feel you're relatively comfortable, and as you say, you, you're on the straight and narrow, do you think if you, if you were to return to that school now, would it would it be a different experience, or was it was it just not for you at, at any stage in your life? Um, well, I think I'd, I'd be better. I'd be better because you know I, I have now spent I spent 25 years in six home colleges. And you know, I think um, I, I, I just I just know how to build those relationships much better now. Mm. I mean, you know, you ask you ask me to, and of course the thing is, it would be wrong to suggest that um, you know it was simply my job that that, that brought about my breakdown. Mm. I mean, that's that's not true. That actually there are all sorts of things in my psyche that were working through. You know, and um, you know, I had I, I was deeply unhappy on the inside and deeply unhappy on the outside yes and that that formed a kind of perfect storm if you like um so yeah i, I think i'll be much better because um I, I, you asked me about my favorite books about maths education mm. one of the, one of them is the the craft of the classroom by michael marland and he talks in there, I mean, he talks in there, it's quite an old-fashioned book. It was written in 1975. There's nothing about computers in it, but it's just fantastic old-school wisdom on the very, just the basic nature of what it means to be a teacher. And he, he says in there, um, <clears throat> he says in there, this, he has this idea of sort of the witheredness of the teacher. He defines this concept. Um, and you know when I, you know that's that's the key to everything is being with it. That you're you're sharp, you're you're aware. Mm. You're and the other thing he has is is ruling by quip. That actually <laughs> you kind of you, you know you, your your humour is such an important part of being a with it teacher. And you know I, I when I went pitched up into Hamlet's I wasn't with it at all. Yes. I was I was kind of out in some vague, um, you know vocal harmony singing group type atmosphere and I, I just it was just totally different I mean I, I strangely felt that because I was good at performing on stage I would be good at performing in a classroom yes, yes. and and that's that's a, that's a crazy kind of uh, you know in, implication to, to, to suggest because they're totally different they're totally different performances mm. I mean you know on a stage you, you don't well Certainly, we didn't particularly engage with the audience. You know, we were providing something that we didn't. We didn't have hecklers by and large. Whereas in a classroom, it's totally different. You have to be um, completely willing to, to take on hecklers the whole time. You know, mm. and um, it's a different act. And I had I had to relearn that act totally. 
But I did in sixth form college. I did, I, and, and I ended up with with a sort of act that works. And I, I know there are some people who say they don't view teaching as an act. Um, Anne Watson's quite strong on this. She, she feels that she just walks in and, and, and is herself. Uh, and I, 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 I do agree with that, really. But it's it's kind of an act that is completely true to yourself. That's what I think teaching should be. Um, yeah. Absolutely fascinating, this Johnny. It's often something I've I've thought about myself with uh, with this kind of performing nature um, of teaching, and I've never drawn that distinction before that it's different to other types of performing. But but you're absolutely you're absolutely right. It, it it completely is. And I found my hardest days um, as a teacher, and obviously this is nothing in comparison to, to what you've described. There is is when something bad has happened, kind of in, in your personal life, or for whatever reason you, you wake up and it's you know it's not a good day. There's something not quite right and so on it's it's not like any other job in the sense that you you then have to go in the classroom and you you, ha- you have to adopt some kind of persona you, you can't you can't be kind of down in the dumps in front of the kids or unburden your problems on the kids as you might do in another job as with kind of supportive co-workers and so on so there there certainly is an element of performance about it and, and i i certainly found that's the most difficult bits of teaching for me is is when and i think it's a lovely phrase that when i haven't been with it myself when i when i haven't been able to walk into that classroom kind of fully comfortable with who I am that day in that moment because it's a hard enough job as it is teaching but when you're not right yourself internally it's it's almost impossible if that makes sense oh totally that's absolutely right Craig you know I mean the kids pick up immediately uh, if, if you are you know wrapped with inner turmoil and you don't really know who you are then they they will mirror that back to you I mean yes. they will they're, they're bound to and you can't in a sense blame them for that really um so the teacher who is completely at peace with their own psyche is likely to have the most peaceful classroom. I mean, I think that's that's really true. Um, yeah. So, um, but in in a way, in a in a way, I'm now in a situation where actually parts, bits and pieces of, of what I did in the band, they are sort of useful to me in a way now. You know, um, certainly when you're talking to teachers. That there's a little bit more of that band performance thing comes in, you know. So. Did the um, did, did the stuff from the band ever manifest itself in the classroom in, in a useful way with, with the kids? Did did you find any aspects of, of your experience there to, to be useful? Yeah, no, well, I mean, I, I would I would occasionally, I mean, you know, I, I enjoy writing songs, and I did. I mean, we, we, we did in our school in Southampton. We had Smile. In fact, we were just about to start up with Smile. For, for people who haven't come across Smile, that is, um, it's a set of individualized work cards. Every student in the class would have their own list and they would work through the cards at their own pace. Uh, once they've done a list of cards, they would then do a test. And if that was successful, they'd go on to another list of cards. So um, we were starting this system and I just had, I'd had a terrible day and my colleagues were just looking at me in the maths department saying, well, look, you know, look, Johnny, for heaven's sake, just, just get your guitar out or do something. Just, <laughs> just go in and do some music with them. What, what, you know? And so I did. I just went home and I wrote, I wrote a rap. I, I wrote, um, the smile rap. 
uh, which which started, um, hey, today's the start of something new. It's a new kind of maths for me and you, etc., etc. <laughs> and and uh, so I, w- I just walked in my class. I had a I had a beatbox with me. Wow. I, I didn't say anything. I just put it on the table and pressed go. <laughs> and and <laughs> for the first, I had more attention at this point than I'd, I'd enjoyed <laughs> ever in my career. And I, I did the rap. And and the kids who were a, a wonderful range of of ethnicities etc they all loved it you know they, they thought it was right they forced me to do this rap again at the end of the last <laughs> immediately all my other classes got me to rap yep you know and um you know I, I and then of course the news spread even further i got invited to rap at the smile conference wow and so i thought wow I've arrived. You know, this is great. <laughs> so I stood, I stood up at the conference and I did my rap. And it went down a storm, or at least I thought it went down a storm. But then the organiser came up at the end and said, Johnny, I uh, don't know how to tell you this, but actually a few people walked out. <laughs> and, I, and apparently I had been guilty of cultural appropriation. Um, so <laughs> now... Now, it, it, it was funny, actually, because I, I sort of, we, we'd had this problem in the band, obviously. We were, we were basically six white blokes who loved black music, you know, mm. and, and um, it was a problem. I, I'll, I'll be fair, it, it, you know, it, it, but actually, um, you know, we did one song by Rai Kuda, who, of his jazz album called Shine. Now, the words for that, I think, are pretty dodgy. And I and I always said this in the band. I never really wanted to sing it, but 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 it was kind of a group decision. I, I just I put it this way: I'm aware of the sensitivities here. Sure. And I, I felt that what I did at the Small Conference was fine, but I could see why people might, sort of in a sense, take it the wrong way. I could see that. So an apology was made. <laughs> oh, jeez. At which point the people who had enjoyed my rap were incensed. Yes. And they, they, they said, well, you know, you, you're saying we were wrong to enjoy that? And they kept coming up to me and saying, you know, basically, mate, you did nothing wrong. And so I, I basically split. I'd split Smile in two, <laughs> uh, which is which is pretty much pretty much the story of my career, Craig, basically. Jeez. Um, but, yeah, so, and, you know, um, so yeah, that, that's music in the classroom. I have also, I also wrote a song which actually I sang at a conference just now called the Radiant Song. I sang last week, and um, that that's proved to be thankfully a lot less controversial. So I mean, it's funny you should say that the Radiant Song. So after I saw you at the ATM MA conference, I got an email as soon as I got home from Colin Foster, um, oh, yeah. who who's a former podcast guest and one of my maths heroes, saying, "Ask Johnny about the Radiant Song. It's my favourite song." So Colin Foster, <laughs> Colin Foster, straight away a, a big fan of that. Will you give can you give us just a, a line or something from the Radiant Song, or a bit of a flavour of, of, of what that one's about? Yeah, well, I, I don't know about you, Craig, but I've always found the best way to treat, uh, to teach um, trigonometry is, is via the medium of country and western. Uh, of course, <laughs> well, it's obvious, of course. Absolutely. So, so uh, this goes um, well. The, basically, the idea, the idea behind the song is that Joe is um, someone who he's got a big family. He's got three three sons and a daughter, and every Sunday lunch they have apple pie, right? Right. Now, um, 
every day, every Sunday, they ask for six lots of 60 degrees, which, of course, is a full turn. So there's no pie left over. And Joe, um, you know, is kind of OK with that. You know, he's, he's, he's quite a tidy man. Right. And um, so um, but one day his son has been learning at school and his son comes along and asks, instead of asking for 60 degrees, he asks for a radian. <laughs> and as we all as we all know, a radian is just a little bit more than 57 degrees. So that means there's going to be a bit of pie left over. Um, but um, his son says, "Well, that's okay. You know, so it's, it's all right if there's some pie left over." So uh, you may be feeling this is quite a slender thread to hang us no, on. No, no, tenuous <laughs> is not a word that's going through my head here, Johnny. <laughs> Well, it's, it's basically uh, the, the final verse goes, let's all use a radian. Yes, a radian. Why not risk it? Uh, nothing against the good old degree, but the radian takes the biscuit, etc., nice. etc. Et wow, so, that is fantastic. And I think, am I right in saying that this, I think I've seen a link to this somewhere, I, I, whether it's on YouTube or something. I, I'm, I'm going to track this down, Johnny. I, th- I think I can link to this in, in the show notes. It's um, Yeah. yeah I, yeah, there is, there is, there is, uh, there is a some some uh, some student, <laughs> unfortunately, kind of did a bootleg recording of me doing this song, and so it is available. Yeah, fantastic, yeah. superb. Well, you, you've touched on a, a few things there that I want to pick up on a little later in our conversation, and in particular, smile, and also um, just a, a little bit more on your experiences in teaching in a sixth form college. But just before we dive into that, Johnny, um, I, a question I always ask my guests is is to choose a favourite failure, so a moment perhaps in a lesson or just some teaching experience that, that didn't quite go according to plan and, and crucially what, what you learned from the experience. Does that, does anything spring to mind there? Well, yeah, actually it does. In fact, um, pretty much my last lesson uh, sort of qualifies, I think, on this one. Um, it, it, it was because I, I was at the ATM MA conference last week and um, I went along to um, the very wonderful Helen Williams and also the very wonderful Mike Ollerton. I went along to their joint session, which was on um, the fiveness of five. So they had to, mm. Mike had said he'd been teaching in schools where he was told that kids didn't even really appreciate what five was. So this was a lesson to, this was a workshop to encourage us to reflect on the number five. And um, we did this lovely thing where we, we sat around in threes and we would just count, count upwards going around the group. So person A says one, person B says two, person C says three, and then person one says four. Mm. So you, you've now, so person person one has now said one and four. Yes. And so the question is, which numbers will you end up saying? And is that, is that to do with five or what property of five does that represent? And if you, if you are N people in the group and you're counting up in M's, can you generalize this? Oh, wow. You know, lovely, lovely task. Mm. And I happened to mention to Mike in the break that um, I'd been part of a music group where this had happened. We, you know, one group had clapped in threes. So this would go one, two, three, one, two, right. like that. And then the second group would go in fours. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Yep. And then the third group would go in fives, you see. And if you start all together, clap together, uh, what do you expect to happen? And what, what I was hoping is, well, people would say, mm, well, uh, three, four, and five, the lowest common multiple of those is 60, isn't it? Mm, yeah. So we would expect to be clapping all together 
on beat 60. Yes. So we'd be all together on one, and the next time we'd be all together would be on 60. And then mm. somebody, somebody said, well, hang on a minute, could we start port? And I was, I was completely thrown by this. I thought, well, that will mean the end on 59. So my teaching point is not made. Uh, but, but in fact, that person who suggested naught was absolutely correct. When you think about it, if you go, this, uh, what I realize now is that there was interference between my music and my maths. Because in music, you always you, you emphasize the first beat of the bar. So you're one, yes. two, three, two, two, three. But if you're counting in threes as a mathematician, you go one, two, three, two, two, three. And you, right. you, you emphasize the end of the three, don't you? That's what you do, surely. Yes, counting yes, three. yes. So, you know, and I realized that my, my method, we would clap, the music method, you'd clap together on the one, but the next time you clap together would be on 61. Which, of kind, of, course, which yes. kind of blew it out of the water, really. <laughs> so the person who suggested naught was absolutely correct. If we'd start together on naught, we would finish on 60. Um, but we sh I think we should have been clapping the, the maths way. In other words, uh, dot, dot, clap, dot, dot, clap. And if we'd done it that way, then we would all have landed on 60 together. Yes. So, I mean, I realised all this stuff. While I was standing there, I mean, there, I should, there was an element of people there going, "Look, um, Johnny, we've come to see Helen and Mike. <laughs> who, who the hell are you?" Yeah, I mean, there was perhaps that was just my paranoia, but I mean, I, I did. So I think, Craig, I'm, I'm I'm basically painting a picture of a lesson that went wrong. Um, although teachers, being generous people they are, they let me off. Um, if you're asking me what lessons I learned from that, first of all. Don't buy yourself more than you can chew. Um, I think also, you know, um, just, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, improvisation is fine. In a, if, if there's no improvisation from the teacher, if you're just reading a, reading a script, then that is hopeless. But on the other hand, you know, um, <clears throat> just you don't try and juggle seven balls before you can juggle five, you know. Yes. Very good. I like that, Johnny. Superb stuff. Um, I, I want to turn now uh, to talk about Smile, if, it, if it's all right with you. Um, yeah, it, sure. It's something, it's something that's come up on the podcast a surprising number of times, actually. Uh, Dylan William talked about it. Um, Anne Watson's spoken about it. Tom Sherrington um, has even spoken about it. And it's, it's one of those things that, well, at the ATMMA conference, there was a workshop on Smile. All the resources are available from um, from the STEM Centre website. But um, I'm fascinated to, to speak to you because you, you well you've obviously you've had experience teaching with smile and I'm, I'm being ostracized by the smile hobble half the smile community <laughs> at, the, at the conference as well so um can you just again i know you've mentioned this briefly but but just talk us through if you were teaching a lesson using smile just just what would that look like and, and what were some of the pros and cons of it okay well and um, basically um the start of the lesson would be really simple because Basically, the kids would just be used to coming straight in, sitting down and getting on with it. They'd get their folders out. In their folder would be a list of tasks and off they go. And, you know, basically everybody in the classroom would be likely to working on something fairly different. If, if they're on a table of five people, four, four people, all four people would like, be likely to have different cards. Uh, the teacher, well, basically the, uh, there was very little teaching from the front. You know, you, you basically wandered around as facilitator troubleshooting. 
And really, it was a totally different sort of paradigm for what teachers should be doing. Um, the old the old paradigm said, well, you stand up the front and you say, if implicitly, you say to students, look at me, look at me, look at me. Mm. Um, whereas the, the new paradigm in Smile was, you'd wander around saying, don't look at me, look at your card. <laughs> you know, just In fact, the whole thing about Smile was getting kids to be as independent as possible. And... You know, that, from that point of view, you have to applaud it, I think. Um, if, if you were um, a kid who wanted to get on uh, at whatever level in Smile, you could, you could forge ahead now. Mm. I mean, I, I, think, I think Smile was perhaps begun with two problems in mind. First problem was, was student behaviour. Yes. It, was, it was just so difficult in inner city schools to stand up in front of a class and have a whole class lesson. That was just a really hard thing to do. And the trouble with that is you, you've got a class of 25. It only takes one or two kids to destroy that lesson for everybody. Yes. Yes. Um, so that was a problem because there were a lot of young teachers in Ilya at the time. And, you know, um, they needed help. And the other thing was that there was a lot of reinventing the wheel. You know, there was a lot of teachers writing virtually, you know, <laughs> identical cards on the same mm. task and there was no experience being shared so they, they decided to get together and try and tackle both problems and the so the smile classroom it was it was no longer possible for uh, one or two kids to destroy the lesson they could they could make it difficult on their table for a bit yes but that uh, it would mean that five out of six tables were working fine you know um, and then, of course, this marvellous sort of sharing of wisdom and resources, it meant that every card you set had been revised probably by five or six small teachers. Yes. And the, the resource, those, those cards were terrific. They were absolutely brilliant. They were at the right level and so on. The other, the, the other thing that Smile dealt with brilliantly was mixed ability because you know, all, all small classrooms were pretty mixed ability and, and Smile worked perfectly there. Because everyone's working on different tasks, you know, that, that it's, it's almost by definition it's mixed ability, you know. Mm. And um, so, you know, that was, that was great. I mean, there were downsides to Smile, um, which were the fact that every lesson was pretty much identical. Uh, but, but maybe kids, some kids preferred that, yes. you know, possibly. Um, I think there were efforts to try and there was a system called Omega as well, which would that on a topic you would have a whole class lesson to start with. You would have um, then you do two weeks of smile cards and then you would have um, a whole class lesson to end with. So there, there were attempts to sort of customize smile. So you did have some whole class lessons. Um, but uh, but the other thing that Smile was very good at was teacher workload because of course pre mm. preparation time was down to zero now. You had to do there was admin time. You had to refile the cards. You had to mark the tests. Um, but you know, in terms of delivering a system that was manageable for that kind of classroom, Smile was I thought I thought was brilliant. And can, I, can I ask Johnny, how, how did it work practically? This, this may be another daft question, but in terms of how did students know which cards to be working on at, at any one time? And also, was there any monitoring of whether the kids were getting things right or wrong? Right. Well, I think, first of all, getting right or wrong, again, this was part of the independence thing. 
that actually um, kids would mark their own work. And, of course, if they wanted to cheat, inverted commas, cheat, sure. they could do. And the, the, the message was, well, that's you know, more for you. You know, mm. it's, This is your maths education. If you want to cheat your way through it, away you go. Um, and also, there was this business about making errors. There was one line in the smile rack which said, don't let an error just slip by. If you've made a mistake, you understand why, you know. <laughs> nice. And and that was that was the thing. You know, you learn from your mistakes. And um, uh, as the, at, the end of, at the end of your list of 10 t cards, you would then do a test which was based upon those 10 cards. And there were no answers available for the tests. You had to hand your tests into the teacher to be marked. Ah, got it. Um, so... Um, and these these tests will be made as part of the smile kind of package as well. Oh they? yeah. All yeah. oh, right. So the teachers yeah. not having to write bespoke tests or anything like that. No, no. So if, if the if the if the if the if the student had had to do cards number ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, there would be a test question in a book. You look up. You'd look up the test question for card ten. Ah, you'd, got you'd it. look up. The, you'd look up the uh, question for card twenty, etc. And then the teacher would mark those. Um, if if you had a really if you were going out that night you didn't have time to mark the tests you could just set an extra card the next day no problem you know and yeah you know, I, I would say imagine you've got the whole effectively you've got the whole of your maths organised like this mm. um, you can see it's very attractive I mean smile became a kind of religion really yes. amongst maths teachers and you could see why because it was a it was a way of teaching that. Um, was almost completely antithetical to, you know, traditional teaching. Uh, and can, I, can I ask again, this, this may be a silly question as well, Johnny, but let, let's say, for example, that we, we needed to teach the kids a certain procedure, whether it's something like, I, I don't know, using the quadratic formula or, or sharing in a ratio or, or even something like, like the trigonometric ratio, something that perhaps isn't immediately intuitive and perhaps lends itself quite well to, to teacher guidance and um, whatever phrase we want to use um, for that. How did that kind of um, manifest itself within Smile? Would you just do it kind of small group or individual one-to-one? Because -one obviously kids are going to be working on different things at different stages. So how did you teach some of the kind of big things, the, the big procedures via Smile, if that makes any sense at all? Well, I, I think maybe different teachers did this in different ways, but really, once once you've embarked on Smile, you can't sort of, you know, turn back very easily. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, it, you're basically setting a super tanker in motion, and you've got to go with it. You know. Yeah. And and I, the idea that you would, I I can't imagine ever sort of gathering together five kids from all the way around the classroom to talk yes. about it. Just wouldn't happen. Um, I mean, what you did rely on a lot was student cooperation in terms of cooperating with each other. And, you know, you'd, this, this smile was great at sort of knocking problems on the head. You'd have one weak kid saying, Johnny, I don't understand this. Then you'd have, see, they'd be sitting next to a rather stronger student, or stronger inverted commas student, mm. who would be saying, look, Johnny, I've run out of, I've run out of my card. I, I don't have any cards left on my list. So you've got two problems there. You put the problems together. You say to the the uh, the kids who perhaps, who's perhaps further further along the system, you say to them, "Look, can you help um, help your your brother and sister sitting over here?" You know, yes. and thus thus you kind of knocked two problems on the head. Rather than trying to explain and trying to find fresh work, you try and get the kids to help each other, so to speak. And um, 
So, you know, but it was, as I say, it was, it it required a a substantial shift in viewpoint. Um, But I have to say, in that situation, I thought it was no doubt that Smile delivered better than any other system, really. That's incredible. That and it was um, kind of what's now called year seven to year eleven. Is that right? It went went all the way through secondary school. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Jeez, and what, why did you get a sense of, of of why it lost its kind of popularity? What happened? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think um, I should tell you about one of the teachers in the school. Um, was she was actually my head of department. She was um, Hanora Loveday was her name she had been at the school herself she'd gone away and done her maths at university and then she'd come back to be head of maths at this school you know and she knew the culture inside out and she was very young she was i think 24 or something and she had the kid you walked into her classroom and you could hear a pin drop you know (laughs) um it, it she was absolutely outstanding and and um i spent i spent this was my probationary year. I spent hours and hours asking myself, you know, how does Honora have this magic? You know, yes. Um, there was one occasion where my kids were, I, I give them a task to do and they were saying, Oh, this is boring. You know, and Honora, Honora came up and stuck her head around the door. To, she wanted to ask me about something. And she just walked in and stood there. She didn't say a word. And suddenly these kids, they, they stopped saying anything about being, boring they just settled down to this task <laughs> quiet quiet descended on the room yeah and and they started to discuss the mathematics <laughs> and this this task that had supposedly been boring was now absolutely riveting yeah. <laughs> and then you know honora did a business with me she walked out and then gradually there's the stuff about oh you've nicked my pen etc <laughs> yes, that, that, yes. That, all, that all starts coming back again and you're back to square one. You know, I mean, where does that magic come from? Um, and in the end, I decided that it was kind of a number of things, really. It's a mixture of kind of hypnosis, <laughs> uh, together with some sort of hardness right at the back of your psyche. Some, almost some kind of just. It's, it'd be too strong to call it a threat. And I, I think threat is is perhaps an unfair word to use, but there's a sort of there's something in your personality that the, the, the students know if there's a competition between you and them over something, then if there's a comp- you know if, if there's a sort of social competition, then then the teacher is going to win. Yes. Um, and I think I think students knew that with with Honora, they they could see this whenever they started to have a conversation with her they could see all these kind of future conversations heading off like a big tree into the distance <laughs> and, and at, the, at the end of every the leaf at the end of the other tree said Honora wins yes, you know, yes. basically <laughs> whereas basically my tree students were just, but more than 50% had leaves saying pupil wins you know <laughs> so um, you know that Somehow you just, and, and but Honora was quite honest. She said that the for her first year was 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 a you know a bit of a write off, and it just did take time for her to become that extraordinary teacher that she was. Yes. 
fascinating and and so you, you you were saying just before we move away from smile what what, what why isn't smile around today johnny what, yeah. Why, yeah why isn't it being used in every school because it, it sounds even for me who again i'll be honest um particularly over these last couple of years i've, I've moved more towards for want of a better phrase a kind of more direct instruction explicit te- a model, teaching way of of, of, of kind of uh, teaching my students but this, there's a lot of these things about smile that sounds incredibly appealing, particularly the behavioural aspect and particularly the fact that kids could just crack on with things. So, so what, why aren't, why aren't we using them today as much? Well, I think I think I think you, the behaviour thing is really important. Um, I think the one thing that all educational researchers can agree on is that if you've got really bad behaviour in a classroom, learning is not going to happen. <clears throat> yes, that is that you can take that for granted. Now, I think if you are in a situation where you have um, students who, for whatever reason, it, it may not be their own fault, because you may be teaching terrible lessons in which mm. it's impossible for them to behave. Sure. But if for whatever reason they are being badly behaved, I think smile represents a, a true step forward. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a sort of a much more egalitarian approach. And as I say, it allows... It allows students who want to get on to just get on you know mm-hmm. they, they can they can ignore the background noise they, they just plow on with their stuff and they can make progress um i think i think the, the thing about I, I really really don't see direct instruction as a kind of a dirty term in any way you know <laughs> honestly i think that anyone who thinks you're going to get through a level maths without a bit of direct instruction sure. is absolutely crazy but i do think so yeah exposition I do think there is exposition that has been motivated and then there is exposition that just comes out of the blue, you know. So so with my classes at A-level, I would always try to, if you like, um, allow some kind of discussion, some kind of engagement with some task right at the start of the lesson. To me, to me this was like, what I, if you take a farming analogy, um, a farmer who goes to a field and just doesn't plough it and just sows his seed without doing that is 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 unlikely to get a great crop. Mm. I think you need to plough up the seed bed first before you start to sow. You know, and I would see um, a rich task or some open task at the start of the lesson. That's what it does. It ploughs the ground up, and, and then then when you when you go to the exposition, which is which is kind of inevitable, you have that exposition. Um, then the, the, the motivation is actually, sorry, the exposition is building on some desire that you hopefully have created in your students already. So they're ready for it, you know. Mm. Um, ideally, I know this is a high bar, but ideally you're getting students to desire the theory that you're just about to present to them. Yes. Um, you know, that's what you want. Um, so that, that requires an incredibly careful choice of task. And it also requires very skillful teaching when you're running around the group. You know. Of course. Of um, course. And, and, and again, for, forgive me for keep keep kind of banging on to this, but I'm just fascinated, Johnny, with, with this smile. Well, in the kind of I'm still trying to get to the bottom of, of why why it isn't used widely in schools today. Did you get a sense perhaps over the, the last few years that you were going to the smile conference were numbers dwindling? Were were the kind of rival factions starting saying, Well it's not good for this or that? What why 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 isn't it visible in schools today? Well of course Ilya was wound up, wasn't it? Um ah, Ilya right. was 
Ilya was the big thing that supported Smile, that, that provided lots of resources for things like the conference ah, and so on. Right, right. And uh, I, I don't know, I don't know the history exactly, but Ilya came to an end. And um, I, I think I'm, I'm also glad that the Smile resources have been retained and they are mm. they are available to people. And who knows? These things go in cycles. There may be some kind of um, you know revisiting of Smile in some shape or form. But do you think, Johnny? Can I just ask? We're going, we're going to talk about task design very shortly. But mm. given how how highly how high you regard the, the Smile cards themselves, and as you say, they've been through at least kind of five iterations and, and revisions, are they the kind of thing that a teacher listening to this interview could kind of dip in and grab one of these cards and, and use it to stimulate a discussion or as a, a task, or is it as you described before a kind of super tanker that you, you kind of it's all or nothing? You've got to go with, with everything with Smile. To, to get the value out of it or, or can can we dip in and dip out of it yeah you, you can and, and in fact some smile teachers did that they would have you know a break from the smile routine and just they'd pick one card and distribute it to everybody and we'll have a whole we'll have a whole class lesson on this mm. so, so some teachers felt that was very important but you can't get away from the fact that the main structure of that course was individualized learning yes, via cards yes, and yes. that Really, this 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 was sort of enrichment on top to do a whole class lesson. Really, um, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what, Johnny. I mean, I, I could literally talk smile all day, but that that was an absolutely fascinating um, insight into it. And listeners should know where to get these to, the cards. But if not, I'll put a I'll put a link in the show notes to the to the STEM Center. And um, just before we move on to to task design generally, um, I just want to just kind of go back to something we were talking about before, which is working in a sixth form college. Because I think you're the first guest we've had on this show, um, who've, who've who's vastly experienced teaching in a sixth form college, but also, as you said at the start, you've also seen the kind of other side. You've you've taught in in, in eleven to sixteen schools. So what are, what are some of the differences, Johnny, and, and in particular, what are some of the challenges um, of teaching um, in a sixth form college as opposed to a, um, a non-sixth form college. Okay, well, I suppose if you imagine a student getting to the age of 16 and um, they have a choice, they, they might have a choice. They might have a choice to stay on in their 11 to 18 school or they might have a local sixth form college that they might go to. I think that's, mm. a, that's a very interesting choice they've got available. Yes. Um, if you go to, if you stay on in your own school, there are pros and cons. Uh, the cons are, I think, that you you continue to be taught. You're quite likely to continue to be taught by the teachers who taught you when you yes. were quite young. So you may have a teacher who's teaching you when you're 11. They're going to carry you right through to 18, and that means that you you don't have a chance to, in a sense, reinvent yourself in the same way that you do if you go to a sixth form college. Um, so you, if you head off to Sixth and College, you meet a whole load of new people from all, you know, all, all around the county or whatever. You've got a whole load of new teachers. You're not wearing uniform. You're, to, you're talking first names. You're treated much more as a young adult mm. in that situation, I think. Um, the downside to that is there are, I think, more distractions in Sixth Form College. <laughs> Um, there's, there's basically there's more sex, drugs, and rock and roll in sixth, <laughs> in sixth of college than in eleven to eighteen school. I, I would guess. And that's just uh, the teachers, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> You've rumbled me. 
<laughs> no, I mean, I, I, th- I think it is probably true that there is a. I, I'm only guessing here, but this is from talking to teachers who've taught in both institutions. I would suggest that that there is a sort of more scholarly. Am I right? Perhaps, perhaps that, that's not true. Probably for something like psychology. If you're in a psychology situation, learning psychology, you might want to be in a sixth form college better more. I don't know. Mm. For maths, I think in, in terms of clarity of thought and not having distractions, you might be better off. I think I think the league tables show that schools, 11 to 18 schools, do more, get better academic results than sixth form colleges. But that's only talking. That's wild generalisation. Sure, absolutely. Sure. You know. Um, and there certainly are there's school six on colleges out there that that do absolutely fantastic mm. math scores. So I'm, I'm I'm very nervous about this bit. I'm sure people are going to get in touch and say that's absolute nonsense. No, but, it's, it's 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 really interesting you saying that. Well, I tell you what, if you're going to get in trouble, I might as well get in trouble too, Johnny, with this. So let, let, let me let me chime in on this as well. One thing that I noticed in in my school, my school in Bolton, is that when I first joined the school. They, we were we were losing quite a few uh, kids um, at 16 because they wanted a break. They wanted something different. They wanted more independence. So they would go to to a sixth form college, and because they thought it was it was going to they'd have five years of kind of strict formal rules at, at, um, up to GCSE. So they wanted something different. So one way to combat that was that our school tried to make it a bit more kind of relaxed. So there'd be a common room. There'd be a place where they could hang out. They were allowed to leave the school at lunchtime. They were having the takeaways and all this kind of stuff but then what what happened over the last couple of years is is that wasn't working in terms of a-level results so a move then has been made to make actually the the transition between uh, year 11 to year 12 actually not not that dramatic at all there's this kind of supervised private study to make it a bit more scholarly so um yeah it's, it's very interesting both pupils perceptions and how that actually translates itself into into academic performance if that makes any sense at all yeah it does and i i think that's very interesting. I mean, the business about the common room is very interesting because in a sixth form college, there were occasions where the college would say, yes, you can have a common room. But I have to say the common room was so badly treated by students. Yes, I, I, yes. I, I, I couldn't believe how badly treated it was. Yeah, and then eventually, yep. eventually it was taken away, you know. Of course, one problem with um, is, the, is the finances. You know, this is mm. tricky. I mean, Basically, sixth form colleges have been absolutely hammered in the last few years on the funding. Uh, they've not been included in the uh, ring fence money that goes to schools. And I think I think probably they've had their, their funding cut in real terms by more than twenty yeah. percent. Mm. And 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 in terms of bang for your buck, you know, sixth form colleges colleges are a huge success story. I mean, they really do deliver for the country. You know, um, so you have to ask why is it that, that funding has been so remorselessly cut away and I, I think it's probably because the cabinet haven't been to sixth form colleges have they? they they've either been yes, to they've either been yes. they've either been to public schools or they've been to grammar schools and you know I often wonder whether or not the, the education policy in this country is really run on nostalgia you know <laughs> but you know people wanting to make sure that the way they learned is preserved um, so I I found that, and also we had a terrible problem at Baston, which was that um, Sheringham, which was a, a high school near us, opened a sixth form. 
So they were 11 to 16, and then they became 11 to 18. But the problem was for Sheringham was that they, they couldn't get enough of their students to stay on. So they had quite a small sixth form, which meant they had to, in, a, in effect, kind of channel money from lower down the school into their sixth form. Mm. Now, that meant that, that, that the younger students at the school got a pretty raw deal, you know. Meanwhile, their sixth form was effectively students who should have been coming to us, perhaps, you could argue. Yes, yes. And, and, and that made our finances incredibly tight. Now, so, you know, we were trapped in this crazy situation. I mean, sharing were not able to offer a, a, a wide curriculum in the way that a sixth form college was because they, they had so few students. So, you know, it would solve sharing those financial problems if all their sixth formers came to us. And it, was, it would solve all our financial problems <laughs> if all their sixth formers came to us, you know. So I, I think, you know, I, I should say I'm a huge fan of sixth form colleges. I think they're great. And, you know, I, I, I personally, personally think if, you, if you're lucky enough to have a sixth form college in your area, just go there because it's going to be good. It's really, really interesting that. And then final question on, on sixth form colleges, Johnny. Um, I, I certainly think, and it's something you, you mentioned before, that, that often when I teach year 12, it's students I know, often I've taught them at year 11, or I've sort of certainly taught them at some point during the, the last five years. So I always try and say, look, we're doing A-level now. Um, it's Obviously, it's more demanding and so on and so forth. But there's that kind of continuation through they know me i know them which has big advantages that yeah, that i'm yeah. aware of their history but it also has disadvantages in the sense that if i want to kind of ramp up the challenge it's it, it it's it's not as it's not as big it's harder to convince them if that makes sense because they they've got a certain kind of preconceptions of what maths is like with me and so on and so forth whereas in a sixth form college it's a fresh start for them and obviously you you don't know them it's it's the first time you've met these students and so on and so forth so this is my convoluted way of asking and this hopefully will segue nicely into into task design that we're going to speak about what what do you do with your first lessons johnny when you've got um, got a, a year 12 group you've got them in sixth form college First time they're experiencing you, first time they're experiencing A-level maths. How, how does it start for you? What, what, what does that, that first 15 minutes or what does that first lesson look like? Well, yes. I mean, I suppose I do. I do. I did usually try and have some kind of icebreaker. So, you know, you, you give everybody a number uh, between one and 30 or whatever. And then you'd say, well, you know, get into a group that adds up to a prime number. Oh, that's get, nice. get, in, get into groups that adds up to squares, etc. And so just get people talking to each other, you know, um, just welcome, welcome them to the A-level party, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, and then I, I, I wasn't a great one for kind of um, <laughs> emphasizing rules necessarily sure. at the start. You just, just get on, just, just get on with it. Get your, get your first task out. Get round. I would not do very much from the, fir- from the, from the front to start with because I want to get to know I want to get to know my kids as quickly as I can. Yes. And, you know, it's just, even just having a little tiny little chat um, can help things along. So try and get something where you can do that. I think the only rules that I would talk about was I, I had signs in my classroom and I would introduce the signs. Oh. Um, so they'd be like, you know, traffic signs, effectively. Um, I think this is quite a good way of enforcing some sort of structure in your classroom for example i would have a sign that that looked as if it said uh no hamburgers you know (laughs) (laughs) so that that sort of that basically meant um no eating you know broadly 
Um, but then I could say, well, it also doubles as no yo-yos, you know, because it looked rather like a yo-yo. Right, um, right. So, so it just it makes the whole business. I mean, you may think, well, who's going to be eating your class anyway? Believe me, in sixth form colleges, oh yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in sixth form colleges, people eating stuff is potentially a problem, you know. Yes. And I, I was always, I always said that I don't mind, and if, if you bring some water and have a drink, that's fine. I don't even mind coffee, but I do remind I do mind whole meals, you know. Yeah, of course. Sitting down with a napkin and kind of, you know. So, um, <laughs> but so yeah, I mean, I I think those kind of, that, that that turns the whole business of rules into a bit of a game, and that was fun. Um, I I also I used to have one one sign that was <laughs> basically um, it it was a referee. It was a referee blowing up a footballer and. The footballer was arguing with the referee, you see, and um, it was rather a hard sign to work out. Um, but the message was no arguing with the ref, you see, which is kind of yes, which is me. Nice. And uh, I, I always got my students to try and guess what this sign meant, you know, and uh, they usually guess something along the lines of no singing of YMCA, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which which is quite a good rule anyway. It is. <laughs> so yeah. Um, that's fantastic and it's it's interesting that, that again you and this will this will lead into what we're going to speak about now that you, you're straight into one of the tasks you're straight into an activity where students are discussing working together and it's interesting you say that that you you want to quickly establish well get to know them get to get to listen to them speak and so on and that's probably best achieved by you being able to wander around and, and interact with groups as opposed to you explicitly instructing something from from the front of the lesson that's mm. that that's fascinating that okay johnny i want to talk now about task design and task choice and the reason i, I want to discuss this with you is because when I look back over probably about the first 13 years of my teaching career, I was a little bit too relaxed and didn't put enough thought into both the tasks that I chose that had been written by others, whether it's on TES or whether it's Enrich or wherever it is, I would just grab things left, right and centre without putting too much thought into it. And then as I kind of progressed in my career, the, the, when I try and write a task or an activity myself, Again, now I look back, I cringe a little bit in terms of, of what they look like and, and the thought I put into those. So it's something I'm really trying to get better at, both my choice of task and my writing of tasks. So I thought, who better to ask than the author of some of my favourite activities of all time, Mr. Johnny Griffiths. So to, to start off with, um, just to ease us into it, I wonder how has your approach to task design changed over the years, Johnny, if it's changed at all? Uh, well, it's, it hasn't changed in its basic nature, which is always to write things that I would want to do myself. Mm. You know, I, I think um, where, do, where, where do I get an idea for a task from? It tends to be, I might be teaching up at the board and I'd say something like x squared plus y squared plus ax plus by plus c equals naught is guaranteed to be the equation of a circle. And I, I think I said that once, and I suddenly thought, hang on a minute, um, it doesn't that, hang on, if the values of A, B, and C are, are certain values, that circle's going to disappear. And you don't explore it at the time, necessarily, but you go away, and if you have that hang on a minute moment, there's generally a, a nice task to come out of that. Um, now, you ask about how, how I changed my task design, I would say probably I've gone towards trying to think about making the tasks easier in a way. 
I don't think I've ever had any complaints that a task has been too easy, but I've, I've had, I've had complaints that's been too difficult. And, and I think my experience is that it, where I am at the moment is I would like to go back, if you like, and revisit my wrists mm. and rewrite them from the point of view of someone who is perhaps coming in with a, with a, some sort of predicted grade of an E or something and is hoping to get up to a C, you know, that kind of student, because I'm not sure that I really gave that kind of student um, the right kind of deal in my classroom, you know. I think if I look at my strengths as a teacher, I was, I think I was quite good with the the ones who are destined to come out with A's and A stars, but I do feel a sense of regret about the students who who came in with E's and could have got C's, you know. Um, because in a, in a way that I would see that as just a big, uh, just as big as an achievement to someone who was due to get an A and got an A star. You know, it's it's really interesting um, you say that, Johnny. I, th- I think you've hit upon something massive there that that, that I've been wrestling with um, over the last couple of years, and that is that these kind of activities that we're going to go on to discuss, they're not just, or they shouldn't be just for your high flying students, right? It shouldn't be the case that. You kind of your lower achieving students get taught in a certain way. And then if they achieve a few kind of arbitrary benchmarks, then they are allowed to um, engage in these kind of activities. Because I think that's the mistake I've certainly made in the past, that let's teach the kids the basics. And then if that goes well, then let's give them something more engaging and exciting and so on to do. But would I be right in saying, Johnny, that these these tasks are or at least should be fit for all students to embrace? Is, is that right? Oh, totally. I mean, I think this idea of, of low threshold, high ceiling is, is, is right. You know, mm. that you, you, I had a rule. Basically, if you hand out a rich task, I think that really the first third of it should be immediately accessible to everybody in the room. If that's not the case, you've got a problem. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the wonderful things about working with these, these sort of tasks potentially is that you can set the same task to everybody and yet there is no sort of cutoff. People can carry on working with it all the way through. You don't have to sort of uh, throw three different tasks around your room and sort of divide the, the classroom up into ghettos. And one, <laughs> one, one, one ghetto does one task and one does another. You can, you can hold everybody together on the one task. Um, and that's a big plus, I think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think your idea, I, I was reading in your book, Craig, about you were saying that... Um, motivation leads to success is that true well maybe but what's certainly true is that success leads to motivation absolutely absolutely and so you want to give students certainly at the start of the task you want to give them a sense of success Mm. and that's why a lot lot of my tasks begin with choose three whole numbers between one and ten because anybody can do that you know anybody and and then you're away um so i think but i think i would like to write some risps if you like that were directed at for example those people bridging from GCSE to A level and that is that is, that is a big hurdle you know and I think to write some tasks that were uh, challenging but not not intimidating for that kind of student I would think I would really like to do that 
I'll, t- I'll tell you what's fascinating, Johnny. When you when you say that you'd like to revisit some of some of your earlier risps and and change them so that they are more accessible to to students, um, for lower achieving students, for for want of a better phrase. And um, how do you go about doing that? Is it without kind of destroying the actual task itself? Is it a case of making it more structured? Um, given these this, these opportunities for earlier success, how, how would you go about changing one of those tasks without fundamentally destroying what made it such a wonderful task? in the first place yeah well I, I suppose um, if, you, if I've just written for example some further risks so mm-hmm. I, I felt the desire to write some risks for further maths a level and just just a very simple thing but I have actually now divided these tasks into part one part two part three part four and so on and it's, it's, it's only a tiny little tweak but the idea is that it, it leads to this achievement sense hey I got through part one tis yes. It, it makes it makes the task less intimidating because it's the understanding you may not get through all the parts. Mm. And, um, and so so I, I would to me that has been a success. It also it also uh, hangs into um, computer games a little bit, you know, level one, level yes, two, level yes. three. So that that hopefully will be something that gamers are used to. Um, now, it may be that I'll go back to my old risks and start to include that. Um, I, I wouldn't I don't think I'd damage the task in any way mm. but i would i would just slightly break it up maybe add a few extra sentences try just to lubricate the task a little bit so it moves along a little better <laughs> i like that lubricate the task that's, that's lovely that um, if, if we've got some listeners who aren't aware of your risps johnny do you want to just explain what they are and where, where the idea came from okay well i mean there is there is no um sense of originality here i mean i think <laughs> Open tasks have been around since, you know, Plato, really. Um, and it, it's just this idea of um, committing yourselves to the values of discussion, of asking questions, of exploring, uh, maybe, of, maybe of discovering. Um, I, I know these can be quite controversial ideas. It's, mm. it's, it's far, far from certain that these are the most efficient ways of learning mathematics. But for me, it's... It started for me, if I think about going to conference, for example, sometimes I'll go to a session that is a lecture and I always feel disappointed. Mm. I always feel um, excluded. Sometimes I will go to a lecture where I'm asked to do some maths straight away. You know, mm. And I'm, in, I'm always drawn in. And then I want to know, I want to know who, the person running the session, what did, what did you discover when you did this task? <laughs> I, I want to find out. It seems to me almost as, as night follows day, that the second approach is better. You know, mm. It's going, it's going, it's going to um, draw people in. You know, um, I think it's very hard to teach maths in a way that you yourself would hate to learn it. You know, I think yes. that's, that's yes. difficult. I think to some extent you have to believe if if you love learning maths a certain way, you have to believe that that is going to the way that is going to work for you as a teacher to a certain extent. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I mean. There are problems with these open tasks, which is that some students don't want to learn that way, at least initially. You know, there are some students who I would call perhaps a little cautious, a little bit timid. They want to be told the answer straight off. Mm. They want to be given worked examples straight off. Uh, they want to do examples where all they have to do is to change the numbers in the question mm. and do, do exactly what they've just been shown. And I think, you know, those students, um, they've got as, as big a vote as anyone else in the class, 
And if you want to include them in your lessons, you're going to have to somehow talk to them about it, try and show them why it is that mathematical curiosity is a good thing, try and encourage that in them, maybe get their friends to who do get it, maybe get those those friends to help them along the way. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose I just have it, having you. I, I, I would. I was a bit like Smile. I said that Smile lessons were all the same. My lessons turned into more or less the same. It would be the case of students coming in and there'd be a task on the board and they would discuss it in groups immediately. Um, and then after that, we would have exposition or some sort of plenary where discussion discussion was great, but it had to be part of the whole class discussion. You couldn't discuss it. You know. And then finally, there'd be some kind of you know consolidation with, with some kind of exploratory exercises that maybe um, uh, so uh, so my lesson to be very crude you could take a traditional lesson as being you know 45 minutes exposition 45 minutes exercises that would be perhaps an old school lesson my lessons were maybe 30 minutes rich, rich tasks 30 minutes exposition and then 30 minutes some kind of consolidation in a rich way it's, I'll tell you yeah. what, I, what I find fascinating about this, Johnny. Now, correct, correct, this will be embarrassing if I've got this wrong, but am I right in saying RISP stands for Rich Starting Points for yeah. Fair Level Maths? See, yeah. th so this, this is something I've been wrestling with for, for ages. So you're using these um, as a way of, for want of a better phrase, kind of hooking students in to, to getting them discussing the concept that you're going to then go ahead and, and kind of more formally or explicitly teach them would, would, would that be is that too crude a way of, of saying it well i think you're just you're describing the ideal situation here um you know that's what i'm aiming for but it's difficult mm. it's difficult for a number of reasons because first of all time um you know time it basically very often you get courses that should be taught in 60 hours they're being taught in 45 yes just to save money um now the idea hopefully is if you're a rich task so, well, they will speed the process up because mm. uh, you will have understanding in place before you start to do the exposition, which will hopefully things will snowball in the right direction. Mm. But, um, you know, that's that makes picking the task absolutely crucial. Yes. Uh, you've got to you've got to make sure it leads where you want, because every second in your classroom is precious. You mm. know? Um, so I don't claim to have made this work 100%, you know. I, it may be that I'm possibly a little bit better at writing these tasks than actually using them myself. Um, but I do, I do honestly feel that I, I, if I'm trying to give my students a feel for what I believe is mathematics, um, I, I, I don't believe that doing 20 random questions on fractions is math it, it for me it's not what mathematics is oh, i that, agree if, i agree if, if if that was mathematics i i, I wouldn't be interested mm. um for me I, I i love to just get home get out a sheet of paper and start to explore maths that's what mm. i do for fun and I, I want i want that exploration to be at the heart of what we're doing um so yeah, it's it's fascinating this and this. I I, I, I I'm always trying to decide whether 
well, let, let's take me and you here. I, I don't know whether we agree or disagree on this point, Johnny, and I'd be fascinated to, to get your take on this. So I certainly agree with you on that one, that there, there's no point. Well, I, I think there's a certain value of giving kids some kind of routine, for want of a better phrase, practice to develop, whether we want to call it fluency or whatever, in, in, a, in a particular procedure. Um, but w- would you say, or have you experienced this, where it's... It becomes frustrating for students to embark upon some of these activities because they don't have that underlying knowledge to access the kind of the beauty, the richness of them. Whereas some students, and we've all seen this, will thrive in these. They'll they'll love the uncertainty. They've got the curiosity, but then they've also got the tools and to be able to really kind of dig deep into it and and go far and and conjecture and so on and so forth. Whereas for other students, it it can be quite a, a frustrating experience. Whereas to just again really really bluntly and please tear this tear this argument apart to kind of flip it on its uh, on its head and say okay well let's teach the routine first let's teach the procedures and then let's you've then got the knowledge to be able to use those basic skills in a way that will open up the doors to some of the wonders of mathematics that are contained within some of these activities i mean what what, what's where am i going wrong there johnny if if i am no no i think you are that's that's spot on but um I, I, as I said before, I'm not against exposition. I'm not against saying that this is how it is. But what I'm, I am saying is that the mathematics needs to start with an element of play. Mm. Now, I, I'm not in favour of all play. I yes. think the, the idea that investigation, 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 that's all you do, mm. that, that's, that to me is in a sense leading nowhere. Yes. And, and um, what you've got to do is systematise the knowledge but that, that you're systematizing something that's that's already been initiated. So you, you you come out of your task and then you've got something to discuss. Yes. You build you build upon that. And so that so my my paradigm, if you like, is play, systematize, consolidate. That's what I would say. That's, I like that's how it. that's how it should go. Um, but it needs to be rich exposition as well. There's, there's no <laughs> you know, I mean I I know John Mason says that um there is no such thing as a rich task, really, because um, there's only rich teaching. Yes. And I take his point. I, I do take his point. But um, hopefully in my RISPs, there is a certain pedagogy is kind of built into the RISP in the way that you attack it and, and you know, go through it. So um, I'm not, I, I can't get away from this now. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I could teach any other way, really. Um, I want my students to have the same excitement that I feel when you know I discover something and the great thing is because I, I, I wanted to be a maths researcher when I was um, 17 um, but I've learned I've not made it as a Don or a fellow or anything but I have made it as someone who can do very simple research mm. into very simple problems that's the amazing thing about maths you know whatever level you're at there is research you can do you know we're all researchers mm. Fascinating. Well, I, I asked you in preparation for this interview, Johnny, to, to pick out some of your favourite tasks that, that I thought we could discuss. So do you want, do you want to just mm. bit, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll put um, I'll put the descriptions of these that you've sent through. I'll put these in the show notes so so listeners can access them. And um, I think the first one that you sent through was was Maxbox. Do, do you want to just talk mm. us talk, talk us through this one, Johnny, if that's OK. OK, so this is this is a very famous task. Um, suppose you're given a sheet of metal that is one meter by one meter, okay, and you're allowed to cut 
out of each corner you cut out a square and so you cut out four squares mm. in total but they're all the same size uh, let's suppose that square has side x mm. and then you score along score along the lines and i think you should be able to see you can fold up the four flaps yes. on each side to make a box and the box will have a square bottom and it will have sides of side faces and it will have no top yes and your problem is how can you choose x uh, how can you choose the size of the squares you cut out so that the volume of the box is a maximum mm. now i mean you know you may think to start with all the boxes will be the same volume but actually you know there's so, there's so many nice arguments here you can say well imagine you you don't imagine you choose x to be zero What's, yes. the what's, what's the volume of your box now? Well, it's zero. And then suppose you choose X to be half a meter. Well, mm. basically, your, your, your box again has zero volume, doesn't that? Mm. And clearly, for some of the boxes, there's a positive volume. So therefore, surely, there's going to be a maximum volume. <laughs> what's, what's, if you try and draw the graph any other way, you're going to get stuck. Yes. And uh, so you, you know there's a maximum. How do you track it down? Well, you could just make lots of boxes, but the power of mathematics, you can actually uh, um, use something called differentiation to find when the gradient of the graph is zero. And it, it, as an introduction to the power of the calculus, it's unparalleled, I think, this example. Um, I, I always used to, it, it used to be, when, I, when I, I kind of explained this to students in the classroom, it felt to me like writing out a sort of holy text or something. <laughs> it, 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 I, I just, it was a real visceral feeling of how, what amazing thing this is. And, um, you know, everything works nicely, it, everything factorizes, you've got, all you're doing is differentiating, you're just differentiating powers of x. Um, and the answer is sweet as well. So, and, and just, I mean, it's it's an absolutely lovely activity, and I'm I'm fascinated how you use this, Johnny. So this would 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 this be the first lesson that students would get on on differentiation, and would this be essentially the task that's on the board when they come in with no mention of differentiation whatsoever? And can you just talk us through, if that's the case, can you just talk us through again the the rough kind of timings and the the kind of how you would orchestrate the discussion? Well, what does this actually look like when you use this task for, with students? Well, first of all, on different, I wouldn't start differentiation with this. Right. I don't mean, think you could do, but I wouldn't. Um, I would start differentiation with, you'd have autograph on the board, you'd have um, y equals x squared with a tangent, and you'd draw up a table. Mm. So therefore, you would you would see what happens with x squared, and you notice what the gradient function might be. Try x cubed, a little bit harder this time. Then you could try x to the power 1, x to the power 0. Can you see a pattern in the, the gradient functions? Yes, you can. It looks as though if we differentiate, if we differentiate x to the n, we'll get nx to the n minus 1. Um, so that's pattern spotting. Mm -hmm. And that is actually, that's actually true to how Newton actually discovered this. He, he pattern spotted, basically. Um, and then, so then I would just, I would, have my rules of differentiation. I don't mind giving out rules of differentiation at this early stage and just saying, you know, if you integrate f of x plus g of x, then you, sorry, if you differentiate f of x plus g of x, then you, it's just the same thing as doing them separately and having mm, them together. Yes. Uh, that kind of, and it doesn't work for multiplication though, and you can show it doesn't work for multiplication. So I, I would take a quite a, 
algorithmic approach at this stage because I'm trying to, especially with um, students who are perhaps um, aiming for the lower grades, I, I just want them to know that differentiation is not something scary. Yes. And and it's something that's, that has, obeys quite simple rules, you know. And it goes back to that point about <clears throat> success. Exactly. Exactly. So, hey, I can do this. I mm. really can do this. And then I think the Maxbox then comes in as a brilliant demonstration of the power of this. Mm. Because, you know, in our, in our modern lives, we're always wanting to maximize things. We want to, to minimize things. And um, you, you can immediately see that differentiation is going to help you greatly with that. Fascinating. That's, yeah, I, I love it. And then, again, I, I assume... would. Would you be firing up Autograph again to plot the function? Is is that is, is technology? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> technology plays a big role in in activities like this. Is that right? Yes, yes, I think so. Yes, I'd, I'd, I'd you know, that that is something that really has revolutionised mathematics is the availability of technology. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I would definitely bring that in. But the great thing about the Maxbox is you don't actually have to use technology. No, no. Um, you you could do it just by hand quite happily. Fantastic. Well, flipping out, Johnny, it's an absolutely brilliant choice for for a first task. And um, the, the next one you sent through for me was um, is, it, is it called the Fifteen Game? Is that right? Yeah. 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 Can you can you talk us through this? Okay. Well, you've basically got nine cards, and they've got the numbers from one to nine written on them. Now, two players they take it in turns to pick a card, and the winner is the first person to have. Now, this is important. Exactly three cards in their hand that add to 15. Got it. Okay. So um, <clears throat> maybe you can, you and I could have a game. Yeah, let's do, oh, let's do it now. <laughs> I'm a bit nervous here, but let's, let's do this. And I'm right, so these cards are face up, right? So we can, we can both see them. Is that right? That's right. We can both see them. There's nothing secret about it. Yeah. Right. Let me so, write them. Yeah. Seven, eight, nine. Okay. Would you like to go first or second? Um, and I pro I've done no prep whatsoever for this game, Johnny. So uh, I'll go. I'll go first, please. Um, go on. I'll, I'll take the number three, please. Okay. <clears throat> I'll take the number five. Okay. Uh, oh, right. I will go the number. Oh, I might be in trouble already. Um, I'll go the number eight, please. Okay, well, I would say that eight and three adds to eleven, so I've got to take four. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to get fifteen. That was my plan. That was my plan. Good, okay. <laughs> Things are looking up. Okay. <laughs> I, I saw through your plan. <laughs> so you're you've taken four. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Now you're on nine. Uh oh, so I've got, I've got to take six. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take six, Johnny. Okay, good. So you've got now you've got six and eight. Yeah. So which makes 14, so I have to get one, otherwise I'm stuck. Yes, so you've taken one. So you have a blocked you with your nine. You've got four and one, which is five. There's no ten, so I don't have to worry about that. But you've got, oh, oh you've got five and one, which is six. So I'm, I'm going to have to take nine to block you there, Johnny. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's fine. So you've got nine and six is no good. Nine and eight is no good. Nine and three, however, is no good. Yeah. Six and eight is no good. Eight and three. It looks as though we've come to a sort of end, doesn't it? I think so, if, so yes. If I, if I picked a seven, let's say. Mm, let me just double check. You've, yeah, you've, I don't think you've anything making 15 there. Yeah. 
Okay, so I'll just I'll just take the two and it's a draw. It's a draw. Phew. Okay, so... <laughs> My heart rate there is going through the roof, Johnny. Phew. Okay, well, I'm telling you, for for a, for a rookie, uh, Craig, to get a draw is pretty good. Okay, sure. Um, <laughs> okay, so the number of questions. I mean, it's not. It's let's face it. It's not the most captivating game in the world as it stands. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, uh, it's um, there are there's some good questions that come up now. You could say, well. Um, we ended in a draw. Will it always end in a draw? Or is, mm. oh, well, please, sometimes it won't. If we play with best strategy, will it yes. always end in a draw? Yes. Um, or whether, is it better to go first or second? What do you think? Et cetera, et cetera. Lots of nice questions come up. Now, how to answer all those questions, there also may be the sort of vague sense that we've sort of played a game a bit like this before. Have you? Just, did you have that feeling, Craig, at all? Um, certainly the the thought process felt familiar. Yes. Okay. Well, look, take take your cards from one to nine, right? Okay. And arrange them in a square on the table. And you're going to arrange them in three by three square, mm. but you, we're going to make it a magic square. Huh? <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. Now, um, what's the magic sum on a three by three magic square? I'm, I'm hoping it's 15. I'm hoping. It's, it's 15, right? So you've got your 3 by 3 square. That is the three uh, rows add to 15, the three columns add to 15, and the two diagonals add to 15. Yes. 15, yeah? So um, now this is the amazing thing. How many ways are there of getting three cards to add to 15? And in fact, if you add them up, there are exactly eight. Right. right okay. and, and those are the eight ways that you can see on your magic square. Wow. Now, what actually happened then? You chose a three, which is yes. you, pick, you picking an X. So we replace the three on your magic square with an X. Yes. I, then, I then picked five, which is in the middle. So you replace that with a zero. So what game are we playing? La- I don't want to sound that like noughts and crosses, something like that. It is noughts. It is noughts and crosses. Wow. So effectively, what we're saying is that the game, the game we played, and noughts and crosses are the same game. Wow. Yeah. Yes. So now that to me is a very profound mathematical idea that you've got two Mm. things, two things with apparently very different sort of structure, and yet when you look at it, you find they've got the same structure yes so this is if you want to get into group theory this is what we call an isomorphism so the the two games are isomorphic in other words and of course the thing is we all know noughts and crosses we've all played noughts and crosses till the cows come up we know that if you if you play first it's it's a slight advantage but you also know that if two two players are experienced it should always end in a draw so immediately you can wheel in all that knowledge from noughts and crosses and apply it to our game. And it's, it's a way of showing how efficient pure maths is. Uh, when, once you know one theorem about groups, you can apply that to any group you like, you know, so, so to speak. That's beautiful. Um, it's be- absolutely beautiful, that, Johnny. And who, mm. who would you use this with? I could... You could, well, obviously, you could use it with anybody who's played Noughts and Crosses, really, couldn't you? Mm. So that, that, that would, I'm sure, you know, later primary would be very happy playing that. And you, you see, the thing is, as well, it's such a delicate problem. Because if you go to 4x4, four four, if you have the cards from 1 to 16, 
Uh, you can try arranging it in a magic square where the magic number is 34 now. Mm-hmm. But but this time you've got four rows, four columns, and two diagonals. That's 10. But there are many, many more than 10 ways of making 34 with four cards. So. Yes. So the argument breaks down. It, it's it's just so carefully balanced. Um, so, yeah, I think that is a beautiful task. I think it really is. I'm, I'm going to ask a question here, Johnny, and I, I almost hate myself for asking it, right? So I want you to know before I say this, I, I despise myself for having to ask this question, but I know listeners will, will be wanting me to ask. So I'll just put it crudely. What If we've got limited curriculum time, as, as we, we've argued that we have, how can I justify doing something like this as opposed to teaching students some some kind of giving them more practice on a on a specific skill procedure method or whatever that they struggle with so what what i'm what i'm i guess what i'm asking in a roundabout way is what is the intrinsic value of an activity like this like and i because I, I, i'm loving doing it yeah but i'm what do, do you know what i'm saying well, what yes, how yes. can i justify this as a time pressured teacher doing something like this I, I think is my question no i think it's i think it's extremely fair question and one that i'm very aware of having you know run up against time constraints myself in the classroom mm. that's why you know you ask me where do i start with my risks <clears throat> the the answer is i always start with the syllabus because mm. i because i feel uh, if you want, if it's not on the syllabus, it's effectively enrichment. <clears throat> yes. And if you want enrichment, well, you know, go to enrich. Well, what, what else? What more could you ask for? It's, all your resources are there. But if you're thinking about stuff that's on the syllabus, so I, I, I basically feel my risks have to be dead on the syllabus because that means they've got a chance of being useful to people. Yes. Um, so this game, yeah, I mean... How would it win its place um, in the curriculum? I mean, you might just decide it's so nice you'd have to include it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, or else you might. What you might do there might be like a snow day where you've lost half your class. Yes. And you might you might decide to, there's not no point doing something that half the class will miss. So you could do something like this. You know. It's a shame, isn't it, that, it, that it, it has to kind of come to this. And I guess ideally we'd have we'd have all the time in the world to, to do to do this. It, would it be fair to say that there is value in the conversations that this would elicit between students? And, and perhaps this is something that could be used outside of the kind of explicit mathematical context as just a way to get kids talking more because that's a valuable thing right like just students being able to communicate mathematically with each other could 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 we justify its inclusion in that way do you think yeah totally i mean i think you you did ask me what tends to go wrong with risks Mm. and i would say there are students i say who don't don't feel curious mathematically It's it's not something they're used to doing and I think for this task, I, I really pray and hope it would actually begin to spark off a little curiosity in your students, you know. And, and you know, if you could get one of your, your, your kids who'd really rather be plowing through exercises, if you can get them to look at this task and say, well, actually, wow, actually, I get that. That's beautiful. Then, then that is such a step forward yes. for your teaching and their learning. So... From that point of view, it might win its place on its own, you know. 
Fantastic. No, I like, this is what I always do, Johnny. At the end of these, uh, at the end of these podcasts, I, I usually go for a big long walk because I've, I've no, normally got a million things to think about, and then I reflect on my ta- in my takeaway about the lessons I've learned. And this, this is something I know I'm going to be wrestling with. That, that me, where I am as a teacher now, where does an activity like this fit in? Because I, I feel the need to fit it in somewhere. So I'm, yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to be wrestling with. That's superb, that Johnny. Okay. Um, your now this third one's intrigued me so you sent these through so we've had max box we've had the 15 game and then then number three you put through is can anyone tell the difference between coke and pepsi well what's going on there johnny with this okay well um okay so i would describe myself probably first and foremost as a pure mathematician but i do love statistics i love statistics teaching and this topic of taste testing effectively can you tell the difference between something and something else is actually really and we can all see it's an important real world problem yes you know can you tell the difference between margin butter can you tell the difference etc etc so this topic um is very accessible to students it also introduces the idea of hypothesis testing which is probably the key idea in advanced statistics um, it also revises the binomial distribution for them and so on. So this is terrific lessons. Also, there's quite a lot of theatre to it. You kind of say to the students, can anybody here reckon they can tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi? And you, normally you'll have a lot of people uh, sticking their hands up and saying yes, yes, yes. And then you have to discuss how are you going to construct this experiment because it's yes. not completely straightforward. You have to have a blindfold. You have to have somebody tossing a coin. You have to, so to decide which which coke, whether you're going to present the person with Coke or Pepsi. You have to, with kind of, we can you can refine the experiment. So you have a glass of water. So in between tastes, they have to have a glass ah, of yes, water yes. To, to clear the palate. And then, of course, you know, it's very rare to get a student with a ten out of ten. It just doesn't really happen. But you, quite often you'll get seven or eight or nine or whatever. And then immediately the, the idea of significance is right to the fore. You know, mm-hmm. you're saying, well, if the person was guessing, um, then how many would you expect them to get? Um, and it, it, you just you lead straight into this idea of uh, drawing out the. Um, you say you have ten guesses, that leads to the binomial ten and a half distribution. You can sketch that out. You can mark in critical areas, and away you go. So it's it, to me, it's just it's a fun lesson, and people people enjoy seeing whether people can tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi. It's a it's a some, the sort of thing that students are interested in, um, and yet it just leads on perfectly to what happens later. So. I love that. I love that, John. I'm, I, now you, you're on the right podcast, Dick. I'm, I'm a massive stats fan, and we, oh, get, we get people on here who aren't. And I, I'm not. Yeah, they, they do my head in. To be honest with you, they're, they're always moaning about stats. Whereas I'm a big, big fan. And but one thing I've, I've struggled with over the years with stats is is making those abstract, those big concepts less abstract and, and more, yeah, kind of tangible for want of a bit, better phrase. And hypothesis testing and significance levels, that's one that kids, re- I, I find, really struggle to get their heads around. But something like this, for me, it, it, it feels right. It, it feels... It feels something that they're going, they're going to remember because of the fun element of it, but also because of the, the kind of deep mathematical principles that are that are behind it. That yeah, I, I love that, Johnny. Have, have you yeah. done this for many years? Oh yeah, I mean absolutely. I mean, I, 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 and I think um, 
<clears throat> the whole business about you know, significance level here, uh, it's actually a fairly surprising result, actually, that it turns out if you're carrying out a 5% level test, then 10 is significant, 9 is significant, but 8 is not. Oh, wow. So, so if, if a student gets 8 out of 10 right, then at the 5% level, that's not significant. Yes. All right? Um, but, of course, then you could talk about changing the significance level. What happens if you make it 10%? Mm. Ah, now 8 is significant now. So you, you, you get across the idea that the level of the test is crucial as well. Yes. And, you know, there are tough tests and there are less tough tests, effectively. Um, so, yeah, that's, I think it's a great example, a great example of a, of a lesson that's uh, going to be popular. Love it. Absolutely love it. And then the final one you sent through, Johnny, is, um, and this intrigued me as well, proving Route 2 is irrational. Now, again, this I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah, well, how you use this? Well, practically, what, what does this look like and what, what purpose does it serve? Okay, well, this this is, um, again, this is my, my pure maths hat on, I guess. And I, I sort of feel this is one of those cultural milestones that anybody who does A-level maths should see. You know. I suppose it is on the syllabus in the sense that you'd use proof by contradiction to, to prove that root 2 is irrational. Um, but, I, I, you know, I just had this, it's such a beautiful argument, the, the standard one, I think, anyway. The way it just flows beautifully, there's a kind of symmetry to it. And the way the logic proceeds, mm -hmm. Uh, rather sort of inevitably like a kind of chess game to this final idea that you proved you, you start off assuming that route two is rational mm. and then you end up in a situation where you've managed to cut the ground away from under yourself effectively and the only way out is to say your initial assumption must be wrong yes and you know there's the power of these arguments is is just incredible and if you don't like the old argument there's some people who find that a bit cliched the old argument there are rather lovely geometrical arguments as well to show that root two is irrational so you've got a choice available to you but i just think i just think the whole business of number is so crucial that that you, we start with the idea of of a natural number we extend that to the idea of an integer we extend that to the idea of a fraction we extend that to the idea of an irrational number, and then we extend that to the idea, perhaps, of a complex number. Mm. I mean, that sort of that sort of requirement that our conception of number increases like that, uh, as it has done in the history of mathematics, um, that just seems to me very powerful, really. It's lovely, lovely that Johnny. Absolutely lovely, and a, a, a brilliant selection of tasks. Um, I wonder. You, you mentioned earlier that kind of one way that these activities may potentially go wrong is, is students not not talking, not engaging with the activity. They 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 they've had success in the past with with the teacher just telling them how to do something, them recreating it, doing ten questions, and they're perfectly happy with with that style of of lesson. And I've certainly taught plenty of students uh, like that in the past. I wonder, with all your experience. Could you just reflect just for a few moments on how, how to get around that problem in particular, but also what else have you learned from running these tasks in the past? Kind of almost top tips, for want of a better phrase, to, to, to enable students to get the very most out of these that, that, are, that are possible. OK, well, I mean, I think 
I suppose I'm committed to the idea that, that every every student, every child, every pupil is capable of being struck by mathematics in some shape or form. And although it's very tragic that a lot of students don't come to that, I mean, if you ask students, just name one bit of mathematics that you thought was really sweet, there are a lot of students who won't be able to do that. Yes, yeah. And, and that is, I find, a little tragic, really. Um, and also, also, I think once you, once you have found a bit of maths that really does something to you, then you can build, if you like, the rest of your mathematics around, around that, if you know. So, for example, I, I was lucky. I got a second chance at, at university mathematics. I went to, I, first of all, I did some things with the Open University, and then I went to do my MSc at uh, UEA. And I had had a very strange experience of designing a GCSE worksheet where suddenly I realized that I was doing something that was was kind of rather beyond um, solving equations at GCSE. Um, it was like disappearing down a kind of rabbit hole. <laughs> and I, I was I was in the I was in the staff room. I was, I was due to teach a lesson. You know, I, I actually was shaking so much I couldn't actually go and teach the lesson. I had to just, I just had to pop my head around and say, look, you know, you'll have to make a start without me. And I just went and finished off doing this bit of maths. Wow. And and you know, ten years later, that problem became the subject of my MSc because I was asked what I wanted to do, and luckily I had professors who were kind enough to let me do what I wanted, really. And so I spent three years studying that problem, you know, and, and once, once, you know, that problem, which is to do with, has turned out to lead on to things like elliptic curves, um, the cross ratio function, uh, the sort of periodic recurrence relations that we were talking about earlier. Mm. But those, I now have a really profound motivation to learn those topics because I need them. I need them for my problem. Yes. And every time I now land in with a new piece of maths, I don't care how difficult it is because I ask myself, how does this relate to my problem? You know, and that makes it easy to learn because you, you're coming at it from a particular angle. You know, so I, I, I want I want my students to have their favourite problem that they love in maths, and then in a sense they can be encouraged to add the rest of mathematics around it, so to speak. Um, yeah, that's, that's a lovely, so, it's a lovely idea, that Johnny. I like that. Okay, well, if you're talking about things that can go wrong with risks, mm, there is yeah. there is there is another. Uh, <laughs> which, I got a list here. Uh, <laughs> algebra, algebra is sometimes people can sort of take a a wrong turn with their investigation, which means they end up with. Well, sorry, I ought to re retrace what some people take uh, a choice, which means they end up with horrible algebras to do. Right. And that is a real killer, but kind of a risk, really. If you're busy trying to factorize something that's unfactorizable, so you have to you have to design the you have to design the task in such a way that you head off the difficult algebra at the pass. I think. Yes. If you can. 
And that that can sometimes be a case of um, if you have a choice of, say, three consecutive numbers, not doing X, X plus one and X plus two, but doing X minus one, X and X plus one. It's those those little decisions that seem inconsequential can have huge ramifications the further you get through a problem. Right. Absolutely. And I think I've gone in the direction of my risks. I've gone towards spelling things out a little bit more. Yes. And also, you know, making them a bit more bulletproof, you know. Um, but not, I suppose, not completely bulletproof, mm, but sure. a little bit more bulletproof. I mean, the other thing I think is a problem with um, RISPs is that you can, the teacher can love them. <laughs> it's a version of teacher lust here. <laughs> that actually, you can be convinced that everything's going brilliantly and you're yes. loving, 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 you're loving it. But yeah. in fact, the amount of learning that's going on may be less than you think. Yes. And you need to keep sober because you need to make sure that you're you're doing the maximum to make sure that learning happens. That's fa- fascinating um, that, Johnny. I, I, I've, I've encountered this myself. I, what do you do in that situation? Is that just a case of keeping on wandering around the groups and just getting a sense of what's what's going on as opposed to just assuming everything's working out fine? Yes, but, but also I, mean, I think there are times when you look around the room, if you set the right task then you may get the situation where people are so absorbed in the task they really don't care whether you're there or not <laughs> and that's 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 a treat for the teacher yes but don't rest on your, your laurels because you know in five minutes time it could be completely different <laughs> so um yeah and also another problem with risps is this thing about whether the teacher's really confident about them or not mm. now it may be that um you're worried about you know being on the end of certain questions but by definition you may get questions you're not expecting and are you are you up for that and you know if you're not up for it then it may be just more sensible to teach a more standard lesson because you know i would say probably a bad risk lesson is worse than a a good trad lesson well that's interesting and that's what just purely because it's that there's less potential for learning to happen in that unstructured less structured environment if if the kind of not enough thought's been put into it as opposed to a, a tightly structured traditional lesson at least there's going to be some kind of base level of learning would that would that be the argument yeah i think also you know, it's nice when unexpected things happen in your classroom mm. but it's only really nice if you can deal with them effectively. Yes. If you if you if you can't deal with them, then you may risk losing your students' confidence in you. Yes. Um, but on the you know, I think it's perfectly okay for a teacher to say, you know, that's interesting. I haven't thought of that. I'm going to have to wait and have go away and have a think. I think mm. that I think that's quite reasonable. Yes. Um, I suppose what you're trying to keep a sense of is that. Um, you value the student doing some improvising and you can challenge the student to just go away and, and explore it for themselves and come back and let you know. I, I think that's that's reasonable. And, you know, ideally, these rich tasks, that's what students will want to do. They'll want to take them away and practice in their spare time. They'll want to give up time on their computer games to do maths. That's what we want. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, it's. I couldn't agree more. And 
you, you've hit the nail on the head with, with another kind of recurring theme that keeps coming up in the podcast and it's something that I, I've, I've been guilty of in the past and that's that's not doing the tasks fully that I'm going to give my students and that's bad enough whenever it's a set of 10 questions if there's a, a bit of a stinker in there that I've, I've not thought through or my kids aren't prepared for it and so on but even worse with one of these activities I mean like you say there's something nice about the teacher being surprised themselves in the lesson but if you if you surprised that every single single thing that happens is, exactly. yeah, it becomes a bit of an issue that's right um kind of just two more things i want to want to talk about johnny before i hand over to you for some reflections and then your big three and um, we've, we've touched upon this one but i just wondered if you had any other thoughts on it and that's that's the importance of, of talk um in the classroom and particularly with these these kind of open-ended tasks and and the risps in particular um is there a way that you found to help students get better at having the kind of mathematical conversations that, that are likely to be beneficial for, for learning? Yes, I think I, 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 my sort of baseline was always that discussion between students was actually the most important thing in the classroom, really. Um, but you're quite right. It's not necessarily something that people immediately learn or immediately good at they have to learn yes. to be good at it so i think the reason i like discussion is it's very likely to be at the right level you know if people are people are expressing thoughts and ideas about the mathematics it's going to be at their level whereas if i'm talking from the front there's no guarantee at all that i'm going to be talking at the right level um i think the whole business about how you choose the groups is really interesting um do you should say to kids just just get into friendship groups, or do you say you start numbering the class one two three four one two three four and say all the ones get together? Well, in both those scenarios, you may end up with pretty much the same groups every time if you're not careful. Um, and and the whole business about friendship groups I think is quite interesting because um, will people learn better in a friendship group or in a mixed group? Mm. Um, I think there's some research come out recently was they, they compared a group of four who were all friends with a group of four who were three friends and a stranger. And they set the task and away they went and they discovered that the group of four friends, they enjoyed the experience more, but learned less. Ah, right. While, yes. while the group with a stranger enjoyed the experience less, but learned more. <laughs> uh, um, I, I sometimes, and my colleagues thought I was absolutely crazy for doing this, <laughs> but I, I would kind of have an Excel spreadsheet, which would get, which would actually choose the groups at random. All right. Okay. But I'm, I'm, you know, but the, the kids, I think went along with that. They, they sort of saw that that was sort of fair, that mm. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to manipulate some outcome by choosing a group in a certain way. You know? Yes. Um, so I think that's I, I find all that interesting how that how we choose those. Um, I think there's a great need for generosity in discussion. I think if you if it's if a table becomes very competitive, that's a problem. Um, you know I think I think students who get the task quickly need to help students who don't get the task quickly. Um, I need there needs to share the contribution time. You need to have students who don't hog the whole thing, but you don't have students who just coast along, letting letting everyone else do all the work. It's it's a very delicate thing, you know. Um, I suppose um, I think rich tasks are great because 
they're a bit of a leveller, I suppose. Uh, but what I mean by that is that um, you may find that an inverted commas weaker student will be more adventurous. They'll be more brave. They'll be prepared to take risks on a problem. Whereas if you take a, a, an inverted commas stronger student, they might be more timid mm. and they might, they might be more cautious. And so those two students could learn an enormous amount from each other, I think. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of discussion. I always said to my students, look, you're, you're almost certain to learn more from each other than you are from me. <laughs> and I, I, I genuinely believe that, which is not which is not to say that the exposition that a teacher provides is not important because it's sure. very important. But um, for me, that the key activity in a classroom was students talking together about maths. That was the key thing. And do you have, Johnny, um, any, obviously there's task specific questions that you yourself may ask students to to prompt this discussion, whether it's with small groups, or whether it's whole class. But were there any kind of prompts or question stems or any any good questions that, that, that tended to elicit some really good discussions from students or, or really kind of deep thinking, for want of a better phrase? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think questioning is 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 such a key thing, isn't it? And I'm not convinced I was very good at it for long periods of my teaching mm, career. Yeah, me neither. Um, I by the end I was using mini whiteboards a lot. Um, in fact, I think really, if you're going to use them, you really have to use them every lesson. So, mm. so basically, as kids come in, they take up a pick up a whiteboard and away they go. They they just part of their routine. The great thing about those was that um, what it meant was that when you ask a question, you can ask everybody to write down their answer. And so there's no coasting. It, you know, as a teacher, if you ask a question, you get one answer from one student. That doesn't really tell you a lot about what the whole class is thinking. Yes. So you have to get students to commit. It's not enough for them to sit there and think, oh, I think, yeah, I think I get that. They actually have to write something down. It's it's a it's a big step, and once you once you get the feeling that, that they've got the hang of this, they'll be much more used to voting and committing in class, which I think is a good thing. Mm. Um, yeah. So um, questions. Yeah. I mean, I I did have a big deal about look. There are no, there are no silly questions and there are no silly answers. You know, and I, I really tried to live that out. Um, you know, if I got a question that, or if I got an answer that I thought was clearly, clearly inverted commas wrong, then I would just try and pursue that wrong answer and show that it led to a dead end in some way. Mm. Um, so you're, you're not exactly judging the answer, but you are showing that it leads to a contradiction. Um, so I, I tried to try to address answer, wrong answers like that. Um, I, I suppose there were there were one or two times when I didn't I didn't manage that. There was I think there are some mistakes that are just lazy, and that it is reasonable for a teacher to be slightly exasperated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. <laughs> I, I had uh, one 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 student came up with he had to solve x squared equals sixty four, and um, so what he did was he took the sixty four to the other side so you got x squared 
x squared minus 64 equals zero. I like it, yeah. And then he applied the um, quadratic formula to this. <laughs> and and moreover, he applied the quadratic formula wrongly. So, um, and now I, I cried. I literally, I cried. <laughs> I cried at that. Uh, it was only it was only three weeks to his A level exams as well. So, but um, I think that may be allowed. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, that, that, that's absolutely brilliant. That. Um, it's, it's, I don't know what your take on this, Johnny, is. Um, that is there a danger sometimes that we we expend both a lot of energy and a lot of time trying to figure out where some of these kind of wrong answers come from, for, for want of a better phrase. And the reason I say this is. I've often felt over the years that actually it's, it's been quite damaging and confusing for students where when I go and explore a wrong answer to a question like, OK, so David said the answer is five. Let's have a think about it. Could it be five? Well, if it was five, we'll do this, this and this and this. Whereas and particularly having had a couple of conversations with with Mark McCourt um, recently and um, I've part of me is thinking is it best sometimes just to say no that's wrong and then move on to actually what the right answer is and then maybe we'll come back to, to exploring why that was wrong later on as opposed to when it's this early phase when students are learning something for the first time they're meeting a concept for the first time actually it's more important that they hear the right stuff early on and then we can start to introduce why things are wrong a little bit later does that make any sense and is there any any do you agree with that in any way yeah yeah, I do. I think I think again, it's it's partly this time thing. Um, you know, you, we just, we just do not have open-ended lessons. We, mm. we 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 can't we can't do that. And I, I I in my rich in my rich task working, I I would be quite directive. I, I would you know I would I would know that there would be one or two things I would want teachers to, want students to notice, and I would direct students towards that in groups. I say, have you thought about this? Move in this direction. Mm -hmm. Try this. I would I would be fairly directive about wrong answers and pursuing them. I think mm. you, yeah. I mean, I think that's where there is a case for just saying, look, that's wrong, but it's not something that I would naturally do myself. Yes, necessarily. I mean, I I wouldn't feel particularly content with that. Yes. I mean, it, it might be it might be the most um, simple thing to do in the context of the lesson. You don't you don't want to get distracted from the main point. Mm. But I I, I, pr I prefer this idea of you know shelving it and just putting it to one side. We'll come back and discuss that later. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I don't mind I don't mind um, teachers being fairly directive. That's that's okay, as as long as there is a chance for exploration to go on as well. You know, yes. um, that's fine. Fantastic. Well, a final thing I wanted to talk to you about, Johnny. And this is something we've I've never spoke to anyone on the podcast about actually, and that's that that's textbooks, and in particular. And um, what kind of makes a good textbook? And just just a bit of background um, on this is that uh, so this would be my 15th year of teaching. I remember when I first started teaching, like the worst thing you could do in the world was was have a textbook. And I, this was a shock to me because I'd, I'd learned maths, particularly um, A-level maths and GCSE through some amazing textbooks. And in fact, I've got them behind me in my office where, where I'm recording this. And you were you, it was seen as a really bad thing to have a textbook. And probably in about the first kind of five or six years of my teaching. 
teaching career. And then as of late, they seem to be kind of working their way back in. And I've seen some beautiful um, exercises and activities within textbooks. So I just wonder, particularly someone like yourself, Johnny, who's very much in favour of, of, of the kind of rich tasks, where do textbooks fit into to kind of your philosophy of teaching? And, and what makes what makes a good one as opposed to a, a bit of a ropey one? Okay, well, just to fill in a bit of background, um, I left the classroom, I suppose, 2015. And I, I've done lots of things since, including writing textbooks. I've probably written, let's say, six or helped. Wow, six. Well, wow. <laughs> sorry, let me take that. But I've been part of a team who've written six textbooks. Sure. And it's 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 an interesting thing. I should The first thing to say is that there are plenty of teachers around who think that textbooks are not really not all they're cracked up to be um, my friend Rob Mike Ollerton has written a book called you know teaching without a textbook and, and he's very committed to that idea um, uh, so yeah I mean certainly when I was leaving teaching we our textbooks were increasingly being just piled up in the stockroom we would we would we would give we would give a textbook to a student who wanted it but nowadays something like the integral website which which has everything online this is where i think textbooks are heading and i think the days of paper textbooks maybe maybe certainly a little bit numbered i would say mm. um so yeah i mean I, as i say i have got involved in writing these textbooks which has been a very interesting activity um i should say you're given very strict guidelines or at least i have been about writing textbooks. It, it, i haven't been given a completely free hand to write whatever I wanted. Um, but um, I, I've always tried to make it something that I would want to do myself. It's that same principle. If you're writing stuff that bores you, then it's going to bore your whichever yes. students take this on. So I have got better at writing these textbooks, I think, and I have started to use, in particular, when writing exercises, I have started to use these variation uh, <coughs> techniques which have been very helpful in making my exercise more interesting. Um, I, I wonder about the, the integral site is what I would call random in the sense you can just dive in the middle. If you don't know a word, then you can click on the word and you'll get a definition straight away. It's, mm. it's all hyperlinks. So that, that would, I would call a sort of random access textbook, whereas a lot of paper textbooks are, of course, linear. Yeah, you start at the front and you go through to yes. the end. And, and that means that those textbooks are potentially... A sort of a mountain to climb, aren't they? Um, I mean, how many people start at page one and go through to page two? It's not very many. Um, so I, I kind of prefer the, the the sort of hyperlink ones. And the the textbook that I've written myself recently is is the the Proving Ground, um, which is published by the ATM, and that is forty problems. You can start anywhere. There are three levels, and you can work your way through the level with the hyperlinks. Um, so you know you, you can you can study that book at random. Um, it's again it's this idea of randomness, which I think is quite quite interesting and fun. Um, so I should also say that if you're going to make textbooks pay, there are some textbooks that do pay. Um, you know that if, if you if you're part of writing a GCSE book that is going to sell a lot, you're going to be fine if you're on royalties. My textbooks were largely further maths A level, which is a much much smaller cohort, yes. and it is it is. I hope my publishers won't mind me saying this. But it's quite it's quite hard to make any money. Um, 
and that's not the publisher's fault you know it's that they without exception that the people i've worked with in publishing have been absolutely delightful it's just that um it's just that, as i say i think this is quite hard times for hard copy paper publishers it just it just is yes um so I, i'm wondering what the future of that type of textbook is um oh, so. that's fascinating that and just, just just one more thing on textbooks johnny you mentioned there that um writing kind of using the principles of variation to to, to write certain sequences of questions w with within the textbook um, as an exercise itself now this is something that's oh, obviously it's a bit controversial but particularly with me at the moment with with my variation theory website and i've had get a bit of kickback about this and i'm always looking to improve and, and, and kind of get better i just wondered if you, if you had any tips there if you were if you were looking to put together a sequence of whether it's five questions ten questions or whatever and you're looking to kind of draw students attention to to certain critical aspects how do you start thinking about those sequences or, or what is the process of writing a sequence that, that that uses some of the principles of variation well what, what does that look like for you johnny okay well perhaps i should just say what uh, variation theory means for me at this moment uh, which is that okay you want to set a, a you want to set a series of questions that will um a student will tackle um, you could just send random questions, but that, that misses um, a teaching opportunity. Mm. Because if you choose your questions carefully, and perhaps you, especially you control the variation in some of your parameters carefully, you can actually create um, an understanding that will other go, otherwise go missed um, by the student. Now, I have, in a sense, I was using variation theory rather so unconsciously in some of my risks. Um, now, let's suppose, I, I think I have a, a particular take on some of this. If you uh, say you want to have six questions to uh, address a topic, um, if you have three parameters, or so let's say three, yes, three numbers, A, B, and C, mm. how many permutations are there of a b and c and the answer is there are six mm. now that six questions sounds about right for an exercise perhaps so what you do is you get your student to choose three numbers a b and c and then you they fill in the gaps in the question in the six different ways and very often if you do that there is a sort of connection between these six results mm. be because of the way you constructed them so you can get the student to concentrate on the little mini theorem that you want them to discover um, as a sort of etude, if you like. Um, so they're, they're, they're working towards this mini theorem and they're practicing all these kind of marvelous skills en passant that you want them to practice. Mm. Uh, that, to me, works. That works as a risk for me. Yes. Um, and if you look through my collections, there are quite a lot of them along those lines. I like the idea of a student picking three numbers to start with because it gives them investment. It, it actually gives them a chance to challenge your results, your mini theorem. Is your mini theorem always true? Well, um, let's try it with my three numbers. Let's see if I can beat you on this. Mm. And can I just ask Johnny on that? And again, sorry, sorry to press the point, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by this. One thing that's running through my head um, at the moment over the last couple of months is, 
is is there a danger that if we give students these these varied sequences or, or sorry for want of a better phrase the, these more carefully varied sequences where you're controlling the parameters is there a danger that we're expecting a bit too much from them that we're expecting them to focus their attention on what's changing and what impact that may may or may not have on the answer and so on and so forth but also at the simultaneously expecting them to to practice whatever method procedure or concept that we want them to for want of a better phrase to gain fluency in and and what i'm wrestling with at the moment is is it best to give them some completely disconnected isolated practice first so they they attain a certain level of fluency and then start to introduce the the, the more carefully considered variation so that students have got They've got something left to folk mentally to focus on what's changing and start to understand these relationships. And does that make any sense at all? And is is that something you'd agree with or not? Okay, so so Craig, you're saying should we start with fluency practice and then uh, do some more exciting variation practice? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, yes. I mean, you're sort of saying should we? sort of do the boring stuff first and then the exciting stuff second but with a caveat that i mean my, my original instinct was no we shouldn't because variation can get the best of both worlds we get the practice and we get them to focus on these interesting relationships but what i'm increasingly finding is if students are new to a particular procedure or concept that's where all their energy and attention goes on just trying to get to grips with that and that they, they have nothing left to attend to or notice these these interesting patterns or relationships and connections so that's why i'm thinking i'm wondering whether a bit of fluency practice first actually opens the door to the more interesting maths that can come through the variation that that that's what i'm pondering i'm interested in your take johnny yeah i suppose i think the trouble is you may have turned them off with your fluency true, practice true before they get to the exploratory bit that's that's the danger well let's go back um, to let's go back to success though imagine if it's just short sharp five questions they get them right they feel good about themselves they're motivated and now let's go on to the kind of variation because again we've spoke about before we shouldn't we shouldn't underestimate the motivating power of success right so i totally totally agree with that but uh, then you know I, I don't see why you couldn't squeeze the variation doesn't have to be complicated mm, true it, it, you could i mean I, I, for example i wrote an exercise for one test book recently i was doing inequalities and i had something like um three x plus four is less than 5x plus 7, hmm. right? Okay, as simple as that. And then I made it 4x plus 4 is less than 5x plus 7. And then 5x plus 4 is less than yes. uh, 5x plus 7. Now, immediately, now, all I'm doing is varying one mm. coefficient. Now, suddenly you've got this statement, 5x plus 4 is less than 5x plus 7. And hang on a minute, I think this is, this is perfectly reasonable time to bring in a sort of surprise. Sure. You know? And say, well, actually, this can't work. You know, this is there are some inequalities that have no solutions. Mm. You know? And I, I think that kind of um, I, I agree with you. If it's if it's all, if your maths experience is just surprise, 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 yes. then you've got nothing to hang anything on. You know, yes. you, you need to have, uh, you know, toolkits in your long in your you know long distance memory that um, you can you can bring out, you know, I'm sure. Um, but I think just to have a little bit of excitement as you're working through routine things is fine. 
I would say. Yeah, I, I agree. And again, this is this is I, I want to fully agree, but again, this is ju- just what I've been wrestling with at the moment. I'm just wondering whether there is a case for something where all students have to worry about is just trying to essentially get the question right for want of a bit, for want of a better phrase to build up this confidence to, to build up this feeling of success that then can bring them through to the exercise and i wonder whether it's maybe it's been my poor choice of exercises that there perhaps has been a bit too much going on there's been a bit few too many surprises in there so yeah i'll continue wrestling with this johnny but yeah i, I appreciate your well it, i mean I think it may be just, uh, this is to a certain extent down to teacher style and mm. teacher choices. And I mean, there may not be some global rule for sure. all teachers here. Um, you, you know, only you know your kids, don't you? Mm. That's, that's by definition. So, yeah. Super, fantastic. Well, what we'll move on to now is, is just a few reflections, Johnny, if, if that's all right. So, um, yeah, my first sure. question to you is, um, and this may be an impossible question to, to answer, but is there a particular either piece of research or book that springs to mind that, that's, that's significantly influenced your approach to, or your, your approach to thinking about a maths education? Yeah, I, this is, there is one book that I have loved consistently from the, the first time I bought it, which was um, Starting Points mm-hmm. by uh, Dick Tarter and Banwell and Saunders. It was, it's, a, it's a book, I suppose. Um, it's a kind of potpourri of, of material. It's a mixture of investigations, of, of uh, student work. There are some photographs of how to lay out a class. There are discussions of Cuisinier rods. It's all sort of thrown together in, a, in, in the sort of same way that I learn maths. I mean, <laughs> you know, I don't, I learn maths in a messy way. I, I know I do. And this book sort of mirrors that, if you like. And there, there's some, some of the investigations they suggest are marvelous. And there's just a passion all the way through. They also, there's a lot of humor. There are cartoons. There are, um, there are stories from, uh, you know, Muslim culture, for example. They have. There's a brilliant story about um, uh, the Muslim teacher who stands up in the pulpit and says to his congregation, he says, do you know what I'm going to talk to you about today? And the people also look at each other and say, uh, no, we don't. He said, well, what's the point of my talking to you then? And, he, again, and day two, he stands up and says, do you know what I'm going to talk to you about today? And the people say they've got this plan now. They say, yes, we know what we're going to talk to you. You're going to talk to us about today. And um, the teacher says, well, if you know it already, what's the point of my saying anything? (laughs) And then day three, um, the teacher stands up and says, "Um, do you know what I'm going to talk to you about today? And the people have planned this as well. And they say, well, half of us know what we're going to (laughs) and half of us don't. And the teacher says, well, I suggest the half that know teach the half that don't. <laughs> and, and off he went. And, I, and actually, as a picture of what being a smile teacher is like, that, that is smile teaching, I think, in a nutshell, really. <laughs> so, yeah. Absolutely. So, so it's a very rewarding book. It's very funny. It's out of print, sadly. I don't know why. But if you're lucky enough to, to pick up a, um, a second-hand copy, you know, go for it. Fantastic. And just give us the name of that one more time, Johnny. It is Starting Points. By Tata, Banwell and Saunders. Fantastic. Superb. Um, second question. Um, is there anything important that you've changed your mind about over the years, Johnny? 
Oh yes, yes. There, I, I, I did think about this. I thought, well, I think, um, I, I would say that being a brilliant maths teacher doesn't mean you have to be brilliant everywhere. You know, I mean, I think there are many teachers who would be wonderful sixth form college teachers, but who would not necessarily be great in a primary school. Mm. I mean, I used, I used to think that you had to be great everywhere, but yes, but. It's not true, and I, I think you should try and play to your strengths and your choice. So my choice of uh, that Tower Hamlets comprehensive was was a, 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 a slightly crazy one, which certainly didn't play to my strengths. I had colleagues coming up to me saying, "Johnny, what the hell are you doing here?" You know, I mean, you know, they, they were really seriously mystified as to why I was there, and um, so you know. Um, I had people. I've had people who were teaching at Sixth Form College who left to go and work in eleven to sixteen schools because they couldn't take the preparation involved in Sixth Form. You know, it be, you just have to find the place where you're happy and where your gifts can be best used. Really, that's yeah. I think that's that's super super important point. That Johnny, absolutely love that one. And um, f- final reflection. Again, this this may be a bad question. I don't know, but is there anything you wish you'd known when you, you'd started out in in, in your teaching journey and your, your, your journey with mathematics that you know now? So this is this is me, Johnny. Now talking back to Johnny NQT, basically. Exactly right. That's exactly. So okay. Well, I, first first of all, I would say you know well done because you know teaching is just when it's going well. Teaching is just the best job in the world. Yes. Um, because you're you're teaching a subject you love. You're teaching you're teaching young people who are just perennially entertaining. <laughs> and then the, the whole business of how you actually convey mathematics to people is just a totally fascinating subject anyway. Yes. So you've got those three things going. The trouble is um when teaching is going badly it really is terrible yes okay. so i would say you know look after yourself um because probably not anybody else will mm. um and i'd say you know um if you are in a terrible situation it's okay to walk away from it you know um don't try. I would say probably try not to push yourself over the, the edge in the way that I did, because that really does cast very long shadows over the rest of your career. Um, and it is possible, you know, you can walk away and pick yourself up and start again somewhere else, and that can work really well. Fantastic, superb advice again, Johnny. Uh, brilliant stuff. Um, it's, it's time to hand over to you now for, for, for your big three. So, um, what either three websites, blog posts, books, whatever, whatever you want, would you uh, recommend our listeners check out? And I'll put links to these in the show notes. So, what, what's your first big three, Johnny? Okay, well, um, I suppose um, I would recommend the Mathagon website, uh, which is it's just a beautiful thing it's it's programmed by um, someone called philip legner and he is just such a talent my goodness and it's just so beautifully put together it just shows you the power of the internet uh in a rather marvelous way so that's my first website um i think i would have to mention enrich i mean enrich has been a a big influence for me along the way and i think it's a really marvelous resource i know it's 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 a very famous one but uh, just thank you for that. 
Um, I suppose Mark McCourt's blog I enjoy a lot. Um, I think, you know, UK education is very lucky to have Mark involved in the way that he is. He's very generous. He also, obviously, with his blog, he talks about stuff that's off mathematics, which yes. um, he talks about maybe taking a taking a homeless person out for a meal or... Mm. He talks about his illness very graphically and, and very inspiringly. So, yeah, I, I think Mark doesn't necessarily always get it right, but he's, <laughs> he's, a, he's, he's, a, he's a wonderful person to listen to on pretty much any topic, I think. He is, absolutely. And then listeners can check out my two interviews with, with Mark where we, we disagree on a fair few things. And he's, he's hard to argue with because he's super smart as well. But, he's, uh, yeah, he does have some, some strong opinions. So great choices then, Johnny. And I also noticed you sent me through um, is it links to kind of, well, Two books and one kind of, um, uh, kind of PDF that you'd recommend listeners check out. Do you want to talk briefly about those? Yeah, sure. Um, when I was preparing to go into teaching uh, sort of 40 years ago, um, I, I found Michael Marlin's book on the craft of the classroom incredibly helpful. Um, as I say, it's written in 1975, so it's, it's quite, in some bits, parts of it have not dated too badly but it is a little bit old-fashioned in places but it just makes you realize that teaching is a timeless activity mm. and he he really talks about routines he talks about seating he talks about behavior he talks about um the kind of teaching skills that you need everybody needs everybody so he also he also talks about the loneliness of teaching you know saying that actually you, you teachers spend a, a large chunks of their time without adults conversation <laughs> yes and yeah, that's true and he, he also talks about the distance that perhaps should exist between a student and a teacher very sensitively so i i'm a, I'm a huge fan of that book I, I really enjoyed going back and reading it again for this podcast um, and then you know um i suppose malcolm swan's work they came out with the standards unit a few years ago improving learning in mathematics he manages to express in in that PDF um, just how I feel about my classroom, how how I how I feel about discussion, how I feel about connectionist learning rather than transmission teaching. Um, there's a brilliant range of tasks to promote discussion. There are there are wonderful um, styles of tasks that he discusses, and it's just a it's just a, a one for me. It's a great confirmation of what I believe about teaching. Mm. And was there one other one on the starting point teaching mathematics? I think was the other one you sent through. Yeah, well, that's that's the one I talked about, Craig. The um, the the Tata Banwell Saunders one. God, it, but that's how to print, is it? That's a. Is uh, that, oh, that's a real shame. Got it, got it. Well, listeners can look up that. Maybe, maybe the price on eBay is just going to go through through the roof now. With all <laughs> listeners trying to track that one down. That's superb. Well, Johnny, we have, we've we've reached the end of this conversation, and I, I want to thank you for a couple of things. And the most obvious is is thank you for giving up your time today. This has been an epic. We've been been on the phone for about three hours now, and it's uh, wow. I could I could have spoke for for much longer. This has been absolutely fascinating, and. 
we've we've covered a wide range of stuff here. It's been fascinating hearing about your your struggles with with teaching um, in the early days. Because as as I said to you at the start of this conversation, it's it's well, it's something I can relate to, and I know there'll be thousands of listeners who will be just feeling a lot better because of that. And and the way you've reflected on that in in your reflections has been absolutely brilliant. So I love that as well as all the areas of mathematics that we've we've got to dive into. So so thank you for that, Johnny. And also just thank you for the wonderful work you do. The the RISPs, um, I remember when I first encountered those um, early on in my career and I was I was blown away because it was around about the time when it was it was hard to find good quality maths resources. And if you did, they tended to be kind of scattered about everywhere. Whereas here was a collection of top quality stuff that I could use with my A-level students. And some of them I could use, I could adapt in a, a slight way to use my GCSE students. And they were, it just showed me what true quality task design look like and I've been lucky enough um, to kind of be revisiting those over the last couple of years when I've been doing a lot of thinking about my own practice and stuff and again that they hold up so well Johnny they are absolutely wonderful activities and, and your brand new further risps ones are superb and, and to hear that you're thinking as well about doing some to bridge that difficult transition between GCSE and, and A-level is, is certainly music to my ears so for all the wonderful things that you've done Johnny and in particular for this conversation and um, thank you so so much it's been an absolute pleasure well it's been a great pleasure for me thank you wow what a conversation that was i flipping loved speaking to johnny it was fascinating for for so many reasons all the maths reasons i'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with diving into task design uh, these days it just gives me so much to reflect upon but also that stuff at the start about about mental health about awareness and about the challenges and and, and stress of teaching and indeed that's where i want to start this, this takeaway um section thinking about that um I really enjoyed what Johnny said about if you're not with it yourself psychologically. And I think that's that's such an important point that obviously most people listening to this will be teachers or involved in involved in education. And we're biased because I always say teaching's the hardest job in the world. And whenever people kind of who don't teach come back to me and say why. And I said, well, I, I always argue that you've always got to be on top form. So if something's gone wrong in your life or you're knackered or you're ill or anything like that, when you walk into that classroom, you've still got to be upbeat. You've got to be positive. The energy's got to be there. It's almost like you've got to put a mask on. And I remember one of my conversations with Greg Ashman. I think it was the first time Greg was on the show. And he said something really interesting in regard to behavior. But I think it's, I think it's appropriate here. He said that whenever students were behaving badly and he used to take it really personally, a useful thing he found was to think of himself as a puppet. They're almost kind of to, it's kind of like an outer body experience to take a step back and say, no, the teacher is a puppet here. The kids are performing badly and behaving badly for the puppet. They're insulting the puppet. They're being nasty to the puppet. They're not doing it to me. It's not a personal thing against me. It's against the puppet that is the teacher. And I found that something something really useful to, to kind of distance myself because I take everything really, really, really personally. I'm, I'm not particularly good at criticism, as has been apparent when people have been slagging off me variation theory website left, right and centre. Hopefully I'm getting a bit better at it. But certainly my early days of teaching, that was something I found particularly 
problematic. And I'd come back after after a, a day's teaching, and let's say, for example, that four lessons had gone pretty well, but in in the fifth lesson, generally that had gone okay, but a couple of kids had been playing around, uh, playing up and messing about, and then one kid had said something nasty or something like that. That's all I would think about, and it would it would bleed over into the night, and if it was a Friday, it would bleed over into the weekend. And then what I found happening was if I did have a problematic class or even a problematic student, all my time would be thinking, would be spent worrying about when I was going to teach them again. So I'll never forget this. I used to teach, I used to teach this class. I won't name who they are, um, but they were particularly bad on a Tuesday afternoon. And, and Tuesday afternoon was the only time I had them in the afternoon during the week. The rest of the time it, it was in the morning and Tuesday afternoon, they were a flipping nightmare. And I used to dread Tuesday afternoon. And it, like so early days I'd dread I'd start dreading it around about Tuesday morning and then that fed back into Monday night I'd start thinking oh god I've got them tomorrow Tuesday afternoon and then it would be Monday morning I'd be dreading it thinking oh god it's nearly Tuesday and it got so bad that over the weekend I'd be thinking about it so Friday night Saturday I'd be thinking oh god it's that lesson on Tuesday again and then the worst part was sometimes I'd even get to the end of the lesson Tuesday afternoon Big sigh, of, big sigh of relief. Oh, that's that over. And then I think, oh God, in a, in another six days and twenty three hours or whatever, I've, I've got them again. And this this is the problem. I think this is what makes teaching incredibly difficult. That you can't you can't let that get to you. You, you because you just can't do your job. You just can't function. Now, obviously, I'm describing something that pales into insignificance compared to the experiences Johnny described, but. What's what what I found so much better, or why why I think I'm I'm teaching better these days than I used to, is is partly because I'm thinking about it more in terms of the, the kind of pedagogy and the the research and so on. That that's definitely one part of it. But I'll tell you what, another part of it is I'm just generally just a happier person. I think to to use Johnny's terminology. I'm more with it myself psychologically. So I can go into that classroom and if and if things aren't going well, I don't take it all on board personally myself. I, I can have that bit of distance from it and I can switch off a bit more at night and I still dread things. I, I, that's, that's just me as a person. But... I, it certainly doesn't have such a negative effect on me as it used to have. And yeah, if I, the reason I wanted to say this and then the reason I'm just kind of so pleased and grateful that Johnny brought it up is I, is I know that there'll be teachers listening to this who, who are going through a tough time, whether it's in, in their personal life or whether it's, you know, in their school and so on and so forth. And, and just to say, well, two things. One, you're not alone. God almighty, um, I've been there. Johnny's been there. Some, some people who you think would be the best teachers in the world that they've been there, they've struggled. And secondly, it, it gets better. And, and for me, a big part of that was getting myself sorted and then that bled into getting my kind of teaching better and my relationships better and so on and so forth. So that, that's the kind of first thing I wanted to, to mention. Second thing is I, I want to talk a little bit about task design here because that 15 task that Johnny did, now I had a great time doing that. But as I said to Johnny during the conversation, the struggle for me is where does that fit in? How can I justify spending curriculum time doing that? Because it feels like I should be able to. It feels like a positive experience that I want my kids to have in the way that I would have it. So I'm thinking there's, there's a couple of ways. It, it kind of feels like an end of term activity to me. Um, but the problem with kind of moving things to end of term is they is kids pick up that they they they're not as important. 
if a child says, you know, it's the last week of term and a kid says, sure, can we have a fun lesson? I'm like, yeah, of course we can. Here's some fun maths to do. Its significance, its, its importance in their eyes kind of drops, I think, a little bit. And once once kids don't see something as, in, as important, the effort levels go down, they, they stop thinking hard and they stop learning as much. So is it something that I could do at the start of the year to kickstart the term, to to get students into the mould of, of what the kind of maths that we're going to do is, is like, how I want them to think, how, how there's not always a correct answer, how you can approach these tasks from different angles. Perhaps that's where it fits in, it fits in for me. But this is something I'm, I'm certainly kind of wrestling with at the moment. Now that more of my teaching is, for want of a better phrase, explicit instruction or teacher-led instruction, instruction these tasks I'm, I'm really careful where I put them whereas in the past I, I mean I'll tell you exactly what would happen um, in the past I'd have had that conversation with Johnny and the next day every one of my classes would have been doing that 15 task and we'd all have had a great time but now I'm just questioning is it the right time for it I want as many kids as possible to get as much out of it as possible and so on and so forth so yeah I just wanted to, to throw that out there particularly for, for anyone listening who's under, undergone a similar journey to me over the last few years in the sense that their teachings changed a little bit where do tasks like that fit in for you now tasks that you yourselves find inherently enjoyable where do you put them in how much time do you spend on them and what do you take out because as Dylan Williams says everything we do as a teacher has an opportunity cost because it's times that we're not spent doing something else so what what comes out for a task like that to go in there and if you have any answers let me know because I'm struggling with that one um, another quick takeaway. I love this for, from Johnny. Ask students, what's your favourite problem? What's your favourite maths problem? Now, I know if I asked a lot of my students that, they wouldn't have a clue, they wouldn't have an answer. And having spoken to Johnny and reflected on this, that feels wrong to me now. Because I know what my answer is straight away. Monty Hall. I flicking love that Monty Hall problem. I love anything with probability. I love any kind of counterintuitive results involving probability. But if I said to, to my students, even my A-level students, what's your favourite problem? I'm not convinced that they would have, a, have an answer. So, I mean, is that a justification for doing tasks like that? So that students can talk about problems, talk about things that they enjoy outside of the kind of relatively narrow curriculum that is GCSE or, or even A-level. So I don't know my solution to how I'm <laughs> going to get students to have an answer to what's your favourite problem. Whether it is just exposing kids to lots of different problems, but then again, it comes back to when do I have time to do that and so on and so forth. But I would be upset if I said to one of my kids, what's your favourite problem? And they said, I don't know. And yet I'm pretty sure that's what their answer would be. So that's something I, I just need to kind of wrestle with as, as well. And again, answers on a postcard if you can solve that one for me. Um, two more quick ones. Um, this is something I'm wrestling with now. Fluency before variation. Um, this was whenever I spoke to Mark McCourt, um, and then we, we discussed this in the podcast, that for students to get the most out of varied sequences or what I may call intelligent practice, do they need a certain degree of fluency? Because if they if they don't have fluency in the basics, 
to, to use kind of the, the, the terminology of cognitive, cognitive science, will all their working memory capacity, all their working memory resources, all their attention, will that be taken up by just trying to carry out the procedure or do the method or do the basics? And they'll simply have nothing left to attend to the relationships, the connections, which is where the really interesting bit of mathematics comes from. So I, I'm wondering now whether after an example problem pair, we just need a little bit of fluency, just a bit of kind of disconnected practice, just to boost kids' confidence, to get them a little bit more familiar with the method and procedure so that when I would then give them a sequence of intelligently varied problems or an exercise like that, they've just got a little bit more left to attend to those interesting connections and relationships and so on and so forth. So that's something, again, that I'm, I'm wrestling with at the moment. But as Johnny, Johnny made the point, will, will they be switched off by that fluency, that fluency practice? But for me, it's short and sharp. It may be two questions. It may be one question. Maybe three questions. It may be a 10-minute exercise. And then that almost kind of qualifies the kids. It primes the kids to then dive into the variation where students who need a bit more practice can still get it. And students who have got their practice and now are ready for something more can get into those connections and reflect, expect, check, and all that side of things. So I'm wrestling with that as well. Flipping heck. Johnny, you give me too much to think about here. And then finally... Um, Using open-ended tasks as starting points. This is something that, again, in the past, I would have done without question. About a year ago, I would have said no. So it would have been a complete swing there because I want my students to have... I, I don't want to I don't want to give them things that there's absolutely no chance that they can do. But uh, as Johnny says, it may provide the purpose for them. It may give them that spark, that engagement to say, wow, I really want to be able to solve this problem now. So help me, help me with this teacher. Let's work together. And we're almost steering down the inquiry maths, Andrew Blair way of doing things. So uh, again, it's, I like the idea of starting with a problem. I, I like the narrative structure. I like the beginning, the middle, and the end. I like the hook nature of it. But there's that, that fine line, isn't there? I don't want it to be that frustrating experience where kids are like, well, I don't have a flipping clue what I'm doing. And you, you, you end up kind of spoon feeding them in a way, but trying to almost convince you and them that you haven't and that actually they've come up with it and so on and so forth. Whereas in those situations, I think it's best to kind of teach with the, for want of a better phrase, explicit instruction, and then give the students these tasks when they're a better place to, to get the most out of them, to feel successful and so on and so forth because again it goes back me and Johnny I both agree on this although I got the feeling Johnny thought I wasn't saying this but I definitely was like success is motivating I am a massive believer in that I have a whole chapter on that in my book success is the key driver of motivation success is one of the key drivers of achievement I genuinely believe that so that's what I've always got to balance for some classes opening up things with an open-ended problem will be exactly what they need they thrive upon that but for some kids who confidence is low, whose prior knowledge is low, I think I'm going to give that more teacher-led approach and then I'm going to bring the problem in later on through the learning episode at a point where they're poised to get the most out of it. 
Wow. Okay. I think that's all I wanted to take away from there. But yeah, I, I absolutely adored this conversation. Please check out Johnny's wonderful uh, resources. He's got RISPs and now he's got further RISPs. And there'll be links to all those um, in, in the show notes. Check out some of Johnny's music as well. You can find it on YouTube. This, he's a talented guy, an absolute brilliant guy as well. And um, so... A couple of thank yous to wrap things up. Thank you, of course, to my guest, Johnny, for, for, for giving up his time, for entertaining me, for giving me plenty to think about and for being so open and honest. Um, it, it's, I'm so appreciative, appreciative of that when guests come on and essentially bear their soul because it's, I mean, from a selfish perspective, it's so useful for me to learn. But also, as I, as I said in the, um, it, well, during this takeaway, I know there'll be people listening for whom that was a really important point of part of that conversation. So thank you, Johnny, for that. And thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in to these episodes. I really hope you're finding them as useful as I am. And if you want to support the podcast, the easiest way is to, to spread the word. Tell a friend, recommend an episode. Maybe it's this one. Um, your next thing you could do if you haven't already is share a review of the podcast. Ideally, a good one will be good wherever you get your podcast from, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean or whatever. Really just helps build the audience. Um, if you want to support the podcast, buy me a Mellow Birds a month. It's patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths. Um, and I will return with some amazing guests coming up over the next few months and hopefully the next few years as well, because I'm having an absolute ball doing these interviews. Anyway, you take care of yourselves. 